Meanwhile, back at the Hall of Justice, our mild-mannered podcasters were bombarded by gamma rays, bitten by radioactive bugs, mutated by toxic waste, irradiated with cosmic rays, born into a world that doesn't understand them. First issue. Hello everybody, it's Wednesday, March 5th, 2014, and you are listening to the Talking Comics Podcast. I am your host, Bobby Shortle, and I'm in the house with Mr. Bob Ryer. Good evening. And on the line with Miss Stephanie Cook. Steve is at a concert right now, enjoying himself, so have fun in in, in good old Brooklyn, Steve, and we will will see him uh, next week. Uh, This week on the show, we are going to be, of course, discussing some news and doing our books of the week. Um... But our topic this week is going to be discussing uh, the Comics Pro speech by Mr. Eric Stevenson, who is the publisher of Image Comics. Things that he said, the reactions to what he said, and what we think about um, those things. Uh, If you want to hear some other opinions on that, you can listen to uh, the Misfits podcast, which had their second episode that came out um, this week. uh, Talking Comics sister podcast. Yeah. With Stephanie Cook, Mara Wood, and Melissa Megan. And you guys covered uh, Warren Ellis, correct? Yeah, that was our homework. Uh, we've been like delegating topics to uh, each other, and Melissa's turn uh, came for this week's show, and uh, she chose Warren Ellis since her very first comic book was Transmetropolitan. So we all had to brush up on those skills and look into some of his stuff, and we had a good discussion about you know his works and you know what they meant to Melissa as a longtime reader. And what they meant to us coming to him as a new, as new readers. Cool, mm-hmm. awesome, perfect timing. His new Moon Knight comes out yeah. today. Today, yeah, and they announced an image series um, that he's going to be doing. So that kind of tied everything together as well. And I don't know if it, if it, you guys did it, but you certainly helped. I heard from my comic book store today. He tried to get a reorder of Moon Knight, sold out already. Oh wow, wow. really? Already sold out. So yeah. see what wow. you, the power you guys have. Yeah. I mean, Warren Ellis is one of those guys, right? He's a he's a crossover type guy. I think mm-hmm. a lot of people who don't read comics normally read Warren Ellis stuff. Um, so I was gonna lead off the show with this, and then I chicken. Honestly, I chickened out. Let's, let's be honest. Uh, <laughs> so the Oscars were on Sunday, and if you want to listen to Bob and I, uh, along with uh, our friend Jackie, who we used to do family remix with, were on Brian Verderosa's show uh, talking movies. It's a little reunion of, of, of podcasts yeah, we used fun. to do that no one ever listened to. So <laughs> if you guys want to hear that, it's up on the site now. You listen to that, Talking Movies. Um, it's, it's all about the Oscars. And you can hear us talk at length about that. Bob is on the first half of the show. I'm on the second half of the show. But I think the probably the most memorable moment from the entire Oscars was um, when John Travolta <laughs> came up and said he was passionate about musicals and movie musicals <laughs> and then proceeded to horribly mispronounced the name of the woman who's about to sing the song that would win best song in a movie that year. Um, Adina Menzel, who is a wonderful performer and, you know, a 
a superstar in the in the Broadway world. I mean, she was in Wicked, she was in Rent. She's she, huge. But this is the biggest moment of her professional career mm-hmm. for a wider audience. And now, thanks to that, you know, a billion people think her name is Adele Dazeem. Um, yeah. So it was amazing, thing, amazing things that happened. Like right after this happened, I think the article went up at twelve o'clock. BuzzFeed put an article: What if John Travolta pronounced everyone's name at the Oscars? And it was this hilarious article. <laughs> And then the next day, Slate put up this thing, which was a John Travolta name generator, which yeah. you could put your name into, and then it would spit out what John Travolta would call you if he was announcing you at the Oscars. Um, I was going to announce you guys with your John Travolta names at Please. the start of the show, but I'll just do them now. So I would be here with um, <clears throat> Mr. Ben Rusim <laughs> and Sebastian Clark, <laughs> and I'm host of the show, Bailey Shunter. <laughs> so it's a pretty fantastic uh, thing and I had a lot of fun uh, playing around with it but uh, if you guys hear all about the Oscars uh, listen there and, or follow Stephanie's snarky comments on Twitter from that night um, I only but to be fair I only watched like 23% of the show maybe mm-hmm. and I mean they weren't that snarky it was pretty snarky they were ble- they were okay yeah, okay th- they were kind of snarky you didn't tweet a lot, but all of the tweets were pretty snarky. <laughs> no, I said that Idina Menzel's dress looks so nice. You did, that's true. Yeah. That wasn't oh. snarky. And, yes. <laughs> um, so, uh, but we, again, that's, this is not a movie show, this is a comic book show, so we'll move on from that. Um, we had a little bit of news pop up today, actually, and Stephanie sent me the link to the trailer today via text message. Um, they announced the new Batman video game, Batman Arkham Knight. Uh, created by Rocksteady Games, who made oh. the, the first two Batman games, took off, took the time off from Origin to create this next-gen only version of, of the game. So it's coming out in late 2014. GameStop has it listed as October 14, 2014, which is a Tuesday in October, which makes sense because that's kind of the time they release these games. Um, it is supposedly going to be the last Arkham game. Um, Scarecrow is the main villain. And it takes place a year after the events of Arkham City. Uh, Stephanie, are you uh, excited about this? I Somebody sent me the link first thing this morning, and I was kind of like, oh, you know, after Origins, I feel a little bit meh about this. But it is Rocksteady, which did the first two games. And obviously, those were great games. Um, and after I watched the trailer, I felt a whole lot less meh about it. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I think... You know, in uh, Arkham City, we got to play as Catwoman for a bit, and we have a really brief look at Harley in this, and, like, so help me, Rocksteady, if you don't give me at least, like, five minutes of playtime as Harley, I will cut a bitch. Well, they've already (laughs) announced that you can play as Harley Quinn. Good! uh, But I don't know, they haven't said if it's going to be in the story or just in the kind of challenge map situation. I don't like that. Like, I wish there was actual... I would pay good money for Arkham City DLC to play as, like, Catwoman for, like, for everything. Right. Yeah, I think there's a lot of characters that people would like to see them kind of branch out to. We know in this game that it's going to be bigger than Arkham City. It's going to be more of an open world. You're going to, for the first time, have access to drive the Batmobile, which which is pretty cool. And that's kind of all we know right now. Um, <laughs> um, I, I'm hey. definitely excited about it. You know, I... The Arkham, I'm kind of tired of playing mm. games with the name Arkham in them. It's just because it, there's been three now in, in six years, I think it is, or whatever. Which, that's kind of standard video game stuff, but I was hoping that they were doing something very different than this. But 
I'm encouraged because it is next-gen only, which means that it's not going to straddle the line between the two. It's going to be probably a very beautiful game. The trailer is all CG, so who knows what that even means with the way the game looks. It definitely, mm-hmm. what, they're, what they're showing you in the trailer definitely looks sleeker. It looks, le- you know, it, it looks it looks a lot better, obviously. We don't know what that's going to mean. I, I, if, the, if there are any missions, though, where I have to tail somebody in a Batmobile without being detected, I'm going to scream because those are the worst <laughs> missions in the entire world in any game, especially one that you have to drive in. But uh, It's the Batmobile. You can tail them from four miles away, probably. Yeah, you would, you would think. You would and think. can I also just add in about the Batmobile? There's, you know, Thomas Wayne's wills being read during the trailer, mm-hmm. and he's going over like what he wants for his son, la la la. And like, there's this big point, you know, there's this point in his speech where he's like, don't spend our money frivolously as like the Batmobile is rising up. Yeah. And I'm like laughing. I'm like, good call on that one, Bruce. Yeah. I think that was because he goes like, don't spend it on fancy cars or, yeah. you know, toys or whatever. And it's showing the gear and stuff like that. Which Batmobile does he have? Um, it's, it's sort of like a mix between the Burton one and the Tumblr. From okay. the Nolan movies, the whole the whole aesthetic of the movie is uh, feels very kind of a mishmash of those those two aesthetics in a, in a lot of ways. Uh, Kevin Conroy is back as the voice of Batman. Nice. We don't know much about the other voices. We don't know what they're going to be. We um, you hear the Scarecrow's voice and you hear a little bit thing of Two Face's voice, but not enough to really identify you know who who and what they are. The characters do look a little more. I guess I'd say toned down from the the Arkham games. Like they look a little less stylized to me. Like Harley, the edge seems to be off Harley a little bit. She doesn't look. She looks somewhere in between, kind of old Harley and kind of New Fifty Two Harley. And in Arkham City, she was very much you know she was like New Fifty Two yeah. looking Harley completely. So it, I, I don't. I think they're changing the visual style a little bit, but we'll we'll see what happens. Um, we got a couple of reactions on Twitter and Facebook. I want to get to Martin Ramos says makes me want to go out and buy a console. I haven't had a gaming life since I, I became a father. Hashtag two years and counting. Hmm. Uh, Hugh Perry says great to see Rocksteady back at the helm. As good as Origins was, it was massively let down by the many bugs and the fans let down by the apathy towards those bugs by the creators. From what I've read in the synopsis for the game, we actually get to drive the Batmobile. Uh, I love the Arkham series, and I can't wait to see Bats on PS4. Let's hope this final game in the series keeps up the standard, possibly even raises it some. Lastly, if the rumors are true, and the man himself seems to let it slip recently, Kevin Conroy's back. Uh, Jake Tanner says, I wish I could adequately describe my excitement, but I'm still clinging to my ceiling from excitement. (laughs) Um, And Lewis Carr says, I hope it gets the cast and writers back from the first two games, especially Paul Dini. The whole team had worked so long on the animated series that they knew those characters inside and out, and they really and that really showed on Origins by not having them. Um, so yeah, late 2014, we'll see what happens uh, with that, and you can definitely look forward to hearing more about that uh, on Talking Comics. Can I ask a gaming question? We'll throw it out to people for comments afterwards. Absolutely, Bob. What would you guys who game and all this think, personally and larger world, what if they did a Gotham Girls game? And gave you that cast of characters to play with as your leads. Positive, negative, big um, seller? Would it put people off? Or what, would, what do you think? What do you think, Depends Stephanie? on what the story would be. Like, I can't... You know, in everything Gotham Girls-y, like, they're really short stories. Like, in the Gotham Girls short that's in the Birds of Prey uh-huh. DVDs. Or, like, even the Gotham Girls... Uh, or Gotham City Sirens. Like, I don't remember the arcs being very big. 
And I don't know what you could do, like what story you could do to bring them together that wouldn't be, wouldn't seem like pandering. Okay. Um, like I would play it if they could do an Arkham uh, City or Arkham Asylum level game with those characters, but I wouldn't want something like, um, you know, just like a hokey button mashing, like um, Mortal Kombat esque game with mm. the Gotham Girls. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I think you'd be probably better off doing. I mean, whether it be a solo game like uh, like a Batgirl game or maybe a Birds of Prey game is probably a, a more approachable um, and relatable thing to go with, especially with the kind of the the way that they do their you know those kind of games. And that's just what I think personally. If you're looking at the kind of the Arkham style of games, but I don't know. So, out to the, the listeners and fans, what would you think about a Gotham Girls or a Gotham City Sirens uh, video game? Uh, moving on to more. Uh, comic book, comic book news. These little, little quick hits here. Uh, we have Rocket Raccoon um, ongoing <laughs> series coming from Scotty Young in later in the spring. Uh, he's going to write and draw it. He says it has kind of a Looney Tunes vibe. Um, Bob, how do you feel about this? Anything that says Looney Tunes has me <laughs> at, at that word right there. That is just absolutely perfect. And I've not read his Oz stuff. That's his main book in terms yeah. of book instead of covers. Uh, anyone read? the Oz books to know what sort of storyteller he is? I've never read them. Stephanie, have you read them? I just alphabetized them, oh. but I haven't read them. Okay, well. <laughs> you know, the cover show a great sense of humor. The mm. A versus X babies was his art or his story? I think it was both. Okay. Yeah. Hysterical, but in the same way that E.L. Stewart's JLA is captured the, the essence of the real characters. So it is a talking raccoon with a gun. Yes. So it's going to be fun. It's yeah. Yosemite Sam only is a raccoon. <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm excited about it. I think that I'm excited about it, but it's one of those things where I, I know that if the first couple issues aren't fantastic, it's going to um, be something that I, I, I don't keep up with. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It has to be something pretty special. Because I love Rekko Raccoon. I think he's a great character, and this is a very well-timed release. I mean, obviously, the trailer hitting and him gaining more and more cultural significance. But I feel like the book has to be something pretty extraordinary for me to want to keep reading this tale of this this talking raccoon above just the, the novelty of it. So we'll have to see. I don't, uh, 70, what do you think? Um, I mean, okay... I think on a show we did last year, somebody asked us if there was an artist that, or a writer that we thought was really overrated. And I said Scotty Young, but not because I didn't love his art, but because I thought that he was capable of doing so much more than these covers. And I know he makes lots of money off the covers, so I don't fault him for doing them because he has kids and all that stuff. But at the same time, you know, for me, he's talented and he's more than just these googly eyed you know, cover variant covers. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm really excited for this. Like he can, he's an amazing artist, but he does cutesy really well too. But he also has, you know, that really fine art kind of style to his work too. He's a, he has like great palettes and I don't know if he'll be coloring it, but I just think this is right up his alley. This is perfect for him. Like, mm. you know, Rocket Raccoon or like some sort of fun monster book just seems screams Scotty Young to me, and I think 
you know, supposing that uh, the writing is good, he's going to knock this out of the park. Awesome. Awesome. Um, and another thing here. So Archie Comics announced that uh, Roberto Aguera Sacasa is becoming their chief creative officer, which is the first time wow. that they ever had something like that. That's the same position that uh, Jeff Johns holds at, at DC. So it would, it, would, it would assume that he'll have purview over all comics and all other media-related things when it comes to Archie stuff. And one of the first deals he worked out is that Lena Dunham, who is the creator of Girls on HBO, is going to be writing a four-issue series at Archie focusing on... Um, you know, Betty, Veronica, and the and a few other of the major female characters in the Archie universe. Oh. And Lena Dunham had a quote. She said, I was an avid Archie collector as a child. Conventions, first editions, and I kept in plastic sleeves the whole shebang. It was so much... It has so much cultural significance, but also so much personal significance. And to get to play with these beloved characters in a wild, a wild creative is a wild creative opportunity. Sorry, said Dunham in Archie's press release. Um, Stephanie, you've talked many times about, you know, how much how you came into comics through Archie. Uh, do you watch girls and do you have any opinion about Lena Dunham writing a series for Archie? Um, uh, yes and no. I mean, okay, girls, I watched the first season of, cause I really wanted to see what everyone was talking about. I bought the Blu-rays and, uh, it's basically just hipster sex in the city. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. And <laughs> you know, like <laughs> Lena Dunham, hands down plays one of the most insufferable characters of all time. <laughs> she is so annoying. And I know she's partially basing the character off of personal experiences and, you know, herself and all that. But if that's the way she is, <laughs> she's horrible. <laughs> and like, I don't know how she's planning on writing this series, but if it's anything like the writing she has for the TV show, which I know lots of people love and good for you. But like, I can't stand her. Like, so not a fan. I, I want to like girls. Like, I watched the entire first season because I really wanted to see what everyone else saw in it. And there's moments when her writing is really great, like especially for the other characters. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a really broad range of people in that show, and they can be really fun, but. The stuff she writes for herself, like, she just makes me want to, like, slap her every time. (laughs) Like, she's just horrible. But it would be interesting to see. Like I I said, like, I like some of the other stuff she does for the other characters. So depending on how she's planning on writing this series, it could be interesting. Mm -hmm. I think it will definitely be interesting (laughs) if it's it's nothing else. I guess. (laughs) <laughs> it has potential to be good interesting but for me as someone who finds her very tedious at best mm-hmm. um we'll see yeah i mean she's definitely a personality right that, that and that's a large part of her success and a large part of what i think also turns people off to, to her as as well um I'm, i've only seen a few episodes of the show i really didn't see enough to ever form an opinion about it what i do find exciting about this and uh, this kind of ties in as well to something like Afterlife with Archie is that I feel like they're trying to make that line important again. You know what I mean? It's not going to be on autopilot. And uh, and I know I listen, I don't know anything about the continuing quality of regular Archie books or Archie comics. I'm not going to pretend that I do. Um but I do know that it even though it's probably still a great g- gateway for some people it is largely ignored and largely thought of as quaint 
and something of a bygone era. And I think people are surprised when you tell them that Archie comics are still being published. Mm-hmm. This seems like an effort to change that. Um, again, it's a miniseries. It's not an ongoing. It's not, she's not taking over the main Archie book, whatever it's going to be. But this seems to me like people are going to people are going to stand up and take notice that that someone like this is writing this book, and it's going to make it continue to make it seem more vital. And I think this is part of the reason why they named somebody chief creative officer because they want their line to be something. I mean, Bob, I don't know what you think. Well, they've had a couple of hits that got them into the news. Kevin Keller introducing mm. a gay character. They had a, two what-if arcs of Archie marrying Betty and or Veronica, mm. you know, set 15 years, 20 years, 30 years into the future. And that news and that buzz instantly disappeared. Right. Hit the paper, gone, mm-hmm. no one cares. There, You go to the stores, they're still there. You know, there's still Archie sitting yes. on the counter, and you see still little boys and girls picking them up, which is great. But this is a way, as it was with Afterlife, to have people actually, you know, regular grown-up folks yeah. buying Archies because mm-hmm. they're cool to buy. Yeah. Will her book be that? I, you know, maybe it'll be Sex in the City with Betty and Veronica. Right, yeah. Or it could be Laverne and Shirley with yeah. Betty and Veronica. <laughs> and so that could be bad. But yeah. see what happens. There we I, go. <laughs> I think, I mean, okay, I use the word pandering a lot, but like Afterlife with Archie seemed like a genuine step forward with Archie Comics. Mm-hmm. You know, a step to bring the storytelling up a notch to the step to bring um, the art up a notch and a step to bring the entire franchise up a notch. To me, this seems like a publicity stunt. Well, you but, won't I know mean, that until is, you, you know, obviously know. we don't know until but we like, see what you again, write. But, like, again, that's, you're asking thoughts. No, I know. Yeah. More thoughts. I know. Um, so, we'll, we'll see. I, I think it's interesting for them, though, to, to be doing it. Uh, Bob, you you sent an email out uh, to us today with a quote from the costume designer yes. for uh, Wonder Woman for the Batman-Superman film by Zack Snyder, the Man of Steel sequel, and... You said you were both terrified and elated? or As, as his, his quote is, yes. actually, and I'm going to try to find it in my own little notes here. Uh, they're trying, they caught him outside the Oscars because mm. he was up for... I don't even know what he was up he for. He was up for something. Yeah. And talking about how they're going through everything. He is both scared and thrilled at the opportunity. And then, okay, great. And he wants to see her in her full glory. Mm-hmm. And I'm, okay, I'm liking this quote. We've gone through every outfit she's ever had, and then we threw those all away. No, he didn't say he threw them away. But That's we, not what we he put said. The, we put them to the side. Put them to the side. side and yeah. to something relevant for today's audience. Yeah. And, okay, so that, that throws me a little bit, because then it's going to be uh, molded rubber body armor. I'm thinking in my head. And then the guy asks, the interviewer asks, well, is it possible you could see her in what we're used to seeing her? And with a big smile, he says, well, absolutely. Yeah. So we'll see. Yeah. We'll see a year and a half from now what Wonder Woman looks like. Or probably a year from now we'll start to see. Yeah, probably a year from now. There was this, you know, the I don't know if you watched the video or just read the transcript. No, I watched. Okay, so the reporter definitely has like a, he asks in kind of a, you know, not a snide way, but in a, in a sarcastic way, if we were going to see her in the costume, like, you know, that wouldn't really work. Yeah. And he very matter of fact, says, yes, it would. He goes, look at gladiators, look at Romans, yep. look at, they all wore armor and they did their thing. Loin so, claws and swords and shields. Yeah, yep. exactly. So, you know, 
look, the costumes could be beautiful. I, I think the Man of Steel costume is fine. Like, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see. But it, it, the way the guy talked about it made me excited to see, you know, what we what this was going to yeah. turn into. Because I, I immediately thought, I, I honestly, I immediately thought when they announced it that she would not be wearing anything close to what she wore in the comic book. I thought they would skew that because of the fact that it, they wanted to be more realistic or whatever nonsense they use in, yes. in all of these movies to describe what superheroes wear. Um, but this makes me excited to see what they're going to do. That at least this guy seems to have a reverence for for what came yeah. before. No, seeing everything again. Someone pointed out on one of the websites I looked at. Oh, last time someone did that, we got this, and they showed the picture of the Emma Peel version of mm. Wonder Woman in sort of a white jumpsuit. Right. And I was like. Mm. <laughs> Again, everything he said had me up and down and up and down and up and down. And that the the close of it though, that whole absolutely and going down that all those saying three hundred and all the rest of it. And the, the interview mentioned Thor. And yes. yeah, we mm-hmm. can do that and yeah. not have her in the David E. Kelly uh, hooker outfit from Spencer Gifts <laughs> that they had her in. Yeah. <laughs> Has, have you seen that? What the the one the, from the, 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 the I haven't seen the, the David pilot. Kelly pilot. I've oh. seen the picture of her though. <laughs> Um, DC this week, I'll, we don't really talk about this a lot because there's nothing to talk about, but DC announced their September event like they do every year. This one's five years in the future. Well, 3D covers. I'm sure we'll talk much more about that as it gets closer. I don't want to get into it now. <laughs> and uh, Bob, you wanted to say something about Paul Levitz, right? Well, Paul Levitz, who was the president of DC, he was the publisher of DC, wrote Legion, is currently writing World's Finest, is taking over, well, he's going to the board of directors of Boom Studios. Hmm. So it looks like they're trying to move to the next level too. All these little companies, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, looking Boom, into the bigger, bigger yeah. fish. And Boom yeah. made a big move this year, obviously already or early late last year in acquiring Arkea. But I mean, it's a great con- person to have on on your staff. Absolutely, he's yeah. run comic book companies before, huge ones. So I'd like to see what comes of it. You know, for, to me, because when I see Boom books, most of the time I honestly think they're going to be kids' books. Mm-hmm. You know, and not there's anything wrong with that. There, there is definitely a place for that. But I wonder how they're trying to shape their image going into the future. Well, they have some licensed books. They've done they do. some of that. They have some superhero sort of things, right? Yeah, they do. I mean, they have some, some uh, you know, they have some of everything. You know, it's just that the stuff that's more prevalent for them, I think, is those are their, their big kids books like Adventure Time and, and stuff like that. Now, is he the sort of person can attract bigger talent? Maybe. And you have to think that, oh, I can craft... We can do the kind of book you want to do here now. You don't have to go just to Image or just to Dark Horse yeah. or IDW. We, I'm here. And I know what you need. Yeah. Yeah. We, 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 will, we will see. Could be fun. Now, yeah. Stephanie, I have to ask you, do you think it's possible for someone to be on the board of directors of one company and freelance write for another? Um, yes. Okay. I mean, I don't think freelancing, like, unless he's deliberately bombing a book which i don't think paul levitz would do you know i I just i don't think that affects it you hold one job somewhere that's your full-time gig and if you're going to continue writing freelance that really shouldn't be you know something that people hold against you paul levitz is a huge name in the industry and to you know say for dc to be like Oh, well, we think you should stop writing for us. <laughs> it's kind of ridiculous. Like, he put so much into DC and shaped so much of what it is today. And, like, I don't think, I think he's got one of those keys that's always 
good for the front door of DC. Gotcha. I was hoping for that. I love his writing. Yeah, me too. Me too. I I do as well. And more stuff from him is always going to be is going to be very welcome. Um, so that's it uh, for our news section. Let's uh, move on to books of the week. This has been a rough week for me. I got to tell you, I didn't get a chance to read a lot. So you guys are going to be carrying this one. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Stephanie, let's go. Yes. Let's, talk, let's talk to you. Okay. Okay. Tell me about the Royals Masters of War. Okay. Tell me so, about these superpowered English royals. Yeah. Okay. I had no idea about this book. Um, and I've been, for like the last week or so, I've been organizing um, a library and unpacking single issues that keep showing up mm-hmm. and all this stuff. And among those single issues was the Royals Masters of War, something that I probably wouldn't have picked up um, on my own, but it was here. And, uh, I decided that I wanted to read some physical comics instead of stuff on my iPad. And so I dug into this just kind of thinking, you know, whatever. And I had no idea what to expect. And I really think it's a cool concept. I mean, okay, so it's uh, by Rob Williams and Simon Colby, two people I have never heard of. (laughs) But that's what, you know, Vertigo and Image and stuff is for, people mm-hmm. that you've never heard of. <laughs> Rob Williams, mostly. unfortunately, writes Miss Fury. Yeah, Rob Williams is kind of, he he's like the guy who, at, at least at Marvel and DC, who they kind of call in to write like filler issues and, and stuff like that. Um, generally, I mean, I don't think that speaks to his talent as a writer, but generally those issues are not great. So the, the, I, when, I, when I saw this book on the stands... I, his name is one of the things that kept me away just because of what I've read of his before. But you're telling me that that's not the case here, that it's actually a good book. Well, coming into it with no expectations and no idea what the plot was, I kind of just thought it was a war book. And I mean, that's what it is, but it involves the Royals. It involves the Windsor family and how, you know, it's this concept that all of the Royal family they're not, you know, royals, or they're not, you know, not normal powerful people. because of, right. you know, just the title and, you know, the fact that their family's been, you know, leading the country for however long. They are powerful because they actually have superpowers. Right. It's a great idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it seems silly, but, like, it's really serious. Like, the tone is serious and, you know... It comes from this place where, um, you know, there's a war happening and um, the royals are all cozied up in, you know, their castles and eating their big meals and just kind of letting it pass them by. And these people are kind of like, they could stop this whole thing with just like, you know, the shake of their fist or whatever. You know, they could end this, but they don't because they do not interfere. And... um it's a really cool concept. The art is great. It's very gritty, very like, I don't know. It, I guess it's like kind of dark and dirty, like you would expect from a war book, but there's like these really great shots, like where this one guy is falling out of the sky and there's all these planes around him. And you know, one of the one word in this one panel is fear. And one of the planes that's above him, one of the bombers um, gets blown up and all of a sudden it starts falling towards him and you know um 
the cockpit of the plane, you can see the pilot looking down and screaming as he's kind of falling towards the person. Wow. I don't know. It's kind of hard to explain, I guess, but you don't really understand what's happening until about three quarters through the issue when you start to realize that there's superpowers involved. I thought it was just a war story and kind of a vengeance story. And then there's just so many more layers to it after that. Um, and it was so enjoyable. I mean, it's dark, but it was definitely way more than I thought it was going to be. Uh, it's a mini series. It's only six issues. Um, but it just, it goes back and forth between like the present day and then it goes back to how the Royals kind of started getting involved with the war despite um, their pact that they wouldn't get involved. Mm -hmm. And it jumps back and forth a little bit. And then um, there's a little reveal at the end too about why the Royals don't get involved in the wars. So I don't know. It's, mm -hmm. it's really interesting. Um, I, I don't know if that's because I just wasn't expecting anything at all from this book and it just was like, wow. But I thought it was great. I thought it was a really cool concept that I'm definitely going to try and follow up with. Nice. Very nice. So that's uh, the Royals Masters of War number one. Yep. Cool. S something to be said for a happy surprise, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, so <laughs> happens a little when you, when you're so entrenched in what, everything that's going on. So it's, <laughs> it's cool. Um, and then Stephanie, let, let's talk about main event here. The wake is back. Oh my God. The wake number six. Good. Part two. Here we go. So here where we are 200 years past where we were in the main events of the first part of the wake. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the, the setting has obviously drastically changed. What, what we're dealing with has changed. How did you feel about the, the big new direction for the book? I loved it. I mean, we've gotten snippets of this in the first volume. Uh, Scott Snyder uh, felt the need, I guess, to kind of prepare us for what was to come in the second half. Um, and I suspect, you know, we'll also jump back in this, uh, in this to kind of what's happened in the first half because we were left off um, with a cliffhanger. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, but I... I totally forgot that this was coming out you know now i kind of you know when those books you really want to read but they're on like a little mini hiatus or a break you kind of just try not to think about it so that you're not like jonesing for it like every five seconds mm -hmm. and then i saw people being like the wake's out and i'm like the wake's out what where <laughs> and wow it's it's such a different vibe i mean Obviously, the first book was very heavy on science, very heavy on, you know, the lead character finding out what was happening, and um, then shit happens. And this one is more focused, uh, I mean, it's focused on a single character, mm. but it's focused on her survival and, you know, what she does day to day to survive. Right, um, yeah. So it's immediately a very different kind of tone, but at the same time, it's still that amazing art that you've come to expect from Sean Murphy from the first arc. And it's the amazing story writing that we've come to expect from Scott Snyder. Yeah. 
um, it flawlessly transitions from, you know, that cliffhanger into this story. And some people I think could be like, but what happens? Mm -hmm. And while you don't get all the answers, you know, or any answers, really, you get left with this great moment that starts to tie together um, what's happened already. Yeah, the last moment of this issue is kind of like a what moment, yeah. definitely, because you think you know where it's going, and, and then it just pulls the rug out right from underneath you. It's it's unlike, you know, I haven't read everything that Scott Snyder's done, but it it's unlike anything I think I've seen him write before. The, the, the tone and tenor and the scope of the story is just different. And if, you know, the first book is very much, the first half is very much the thing, you know, has that, that kind of Carpenter vibe to it. And this, it changes up that vibe completely, you know. Um, I don't even know how best to describe the, the tone of it, but the fact now that we've gone into this, it's almost like, you know, a water world type future, uh, not to invoke a movie that mm-hmm. is, is not well liked, but <laughs> where the oceans have started to, you know, incede on, on our, on our land and life is getting harder and harder. And there is a very, very shady government in place. And we have this one, this one character, this one woman who doesn't want to go along with the rules that have been imposed on her since she was born. She believes there's something else out there and there's more to be had of the world than what people are telling her. And because of that, she runs into problems with authority, which is bound to happen. You know, um, sorry, go ahead, Stephanie. Oh, no, carry on, finish. No, no, go ahead. Name. No, go ahead. I just, like, I'm looking at the colors here, and Matt Hollingsworth is just, like, they're phenomenal. Mm-hmm. They just convey such a bleak, you know, feeling for these people that have survived what's happened. I mean, you get a hint. If you've read the first volume of The Wake, you know what I'm talking about. Um, but you, it, it's just... It's beautiful. Yeah. Sean Murphy's art and these colors are just astonishing. And it goes from, uh, you know, the, the very, the, the blues and grays of, and the blacks of the part one to now we've got this, these oranges and yellows and deeper and like richer blues than the, the kind of steely icy blues that were in the first part. And it, it does, it's funny cause they are warmer colors, but it does still manage to convey a sense of, of bleakness and, and despair. Now, I, I'm excited to see what this story turns into and wh- how it develops even more because it, it's kept me on my toes the whole time. Now, there is stuff throughout the first half of the book which goes to time periods and places well beyond what's even dealt with here. You know, way, way in the past, even farther in the future. So I, I don't know how that's all going to weave together and become one. But until then, I am extremely interested in Leeward's story and where she's going and what her what her place is going to be in all of this. So it, it's a great return. And it's a surprising return. And it's, a, it's enough to just, uh, what I love about it and what I think makes Snyder such a great writer is that he seems to be constantly challenging himself to be better, to be bigger, to be different and not rest on the, the ton of accolades he's already gotten in his very, very young career. So but, th- that's what I'm happy about. Go ahead, but at this point in time too, it's now, apparent and like so very clear to me that scott snyder is a horror writer through and through oh yeah absolutely i feel like i think he got his start doing short stories and stuff Mm -hmm. um and horror and then you know american vampire and batman is written in like 
Batman the horror story. Right. <laughs> and The Wake and all of his stuff. And Witches, which mm. is coming out from uh, Image. He doesn't like happy. <laughs> um, but can I... I, I don't want to spoil things for anyone, but I do have a quick question. So I, I, I want to run it by you. So if anyone hasn't read it yet, just tune out for like 30 seconds. Okay. Um, the governess Vivian. Mm-hmm. So is she, they, she talks about how there's people that mate with the mermen. Yeah. Is she one of them? Like a half, half and half. I know she's a weird looking chick. Because she's also got these things around her neck, too. Yeah. That she, look yeah, like... She does. It does look like the... Yeah. And her face, too. She yeah. has, like, the same faces as the... Um, She might be... The, yeah, she might be the offspring of that. Yes. It's okay. Yeah. Because, like, I didn't know if that was supposed to be, you know, obvious or if I was just like, what is happening? No, she I, could be very old, too. Yes. Very old. Yeah. Who knows? Because she's got, like, a yeah. bluish tinge to her skin. She does. She absolutely does. And, like, in a book where you know the colors have been pretty spot on and conveying what's happening she's very um obviously meant to be that way Mm -hmm. absolutely now can i just say that i was a little let down by the first part okay as you mentioned carpenter Mm. it was a lot to me of been there done that Mm. scientists on a base and weird things are Mm. happening and having watched how many old 50s movies where this is what it's what he's channeling Mm -hmm. but that it ended on a cliffhanger was interesting, but it's like, oh, it's going to be three months at least until I see another one. Right. Looking through that just briefly as I did, setting this now into the post-apocalyptic, but something different. Mm-hmm. Someone with a quest. Yeah. We're not sure what that quest is exactly right. What, what as it's going to move forward. I'm invigorated now to look at it again, where awesome. I probably wouldn't have been because mm-hmm. it was good. Right. But in the same way that, you know, the remake of The Blob was. It was fun, but I'd rather watch the original. In, in this case, this new amplification of the storyline, taking it, is it 200 years? 200 years. 200 years out? Mm-hmm. Seeing the political structure. Yeah. Seeing what's going on, and that, that ending is pretty surprising, considering. Yes. It's very surprising, yeah. considering the timing that we're dealing with. Yeah, so The Wake number 6, I think, is, mm-hmm. it's, it's a pretty, it's a pretty, it's a it's a very novel way to go w- with the story, and I'm very excited to see where we go next. Um, all right, so Bob, why don't you oh. tell me about Mighty Avengers okay. number six? I, I did struggle in picking a second or and or third book this <laughs> week because there are two really great Avengers books: Avengers Assemble, which is the next to last one. It's Kelly Sue DeConnick and Warren Ellis. And lots of spider girl goodness. But since there's one more of those and it'll be the last one, we'll go nutty on that one. Yeah. But Mighty Avengers number seven, and it's Al Ewing and, and I'm going to make sure I pronounce this absolutely properly, Valerio Shidey. So you've been beating the drum for this book for, yes. uh, for a while now, even when Greg, Greg Land, Greg Land <laughs> was the artist. And he did the cover. Yeah. And now he is not doing the art anymore. Um, you're still being the drum for the book. Uh, what makes this book special why should people pick this pick this book up over the other eight avengers titles that are out there it has now that it's shorn of events we are telling the ground level sort of carry over from luke cage hero for higher days of these characters it is not a gimmick of minority heroes it is a little family being built with jessica and the baby and anya the white tiger and we see vic the new power man uh, the old captain marvel now 
Spectrum. Hmm. Just Monica. She, right. She'll change her name at every, every drop of a hat. It is a regular story of, it seems like, regular people whose job happens to be being superheroes, which is what made Hero for Hire all those years ago such an interesting concept. It's here. Luke has an office. It's back above the Gem Theater, where it was all those years ago. And in this case, it's someone they met in the last issue. The Falcon actually apprehended this fellow burning down a building. Turns out he's working for someone named Gideon Mace who killed Anya's parents. Okay. She's looking for some hunk back. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there are touches of humor in this. It's a very deep story. The cover is very representative because she gets her powers through. She's the avatar of a tiger god who is now taken completely over. So Power Man and Iron Fist, the new Power Man and the old Iron Fist, mm-hmm. go to stop her from doing something really bad. She's going to go kill Gideon Mace. She kicks the living snot out of them. <laughs> Just crazy. Luke and Jennifer Walters go out there too. Same basic result. Hmm. It is just every character is spot on. They're just written really, really well. I know it's Avengers overload for everybody. Mm-hmm. I get it. I've dropped Avengers books already. I'm mm-hmm. not buying Secret and World mm-hmm. and AI and the rest of it. World was okay, but mm-hmm. not enough. They're just too many. This is one to get. And now that it's found its footing, now that it's found its own mission, we just have really great stuff here. And, and to just since I love bringing stuff with me, Gideon Mace is actually from Luke Cage Hero for Hire number three. <laughs> He's a Vietnam veteran who's lost his arm to a landmine, and it's been replaced by a, re- a real mace. Okay. Uh, he's doing some bad stuff here. It, it, that book was from 1974. He was recruiting dis- disenfranchised and uh, sort of uh, left behind Vietnam vets who couldn't find jobs and the economy was terrible for them and they were being spit on coming home and some of the stories we were all hearing. And he has another plan. He's going to have them take over the Statue of Liberty and the bridges. And while they're doing that, shades of a diehard movie, he's going to rob the Federal Reserve. Hmm. He's not really have their interest at heart at all. They say Luke Cage stops him and he goes down in a helicopter crash. You figure he's dead. Well, he turns up like two years later He's now running his own little security city in the middle of the desert. Luke's on his way to the West Coast and ends up at a place where African-Americans aren't wanted. Mm. You know, the first time it was Archie Goodwin who wrote it. The second time it's Tony Isabella who also wrote Black Lightning for DC. And it's a great little story. And then we, he came back again <laughs> and tried to blow up Chicago with a, with a neutron bomb. So just to prove a point. See, you needed me, and you, you threw me away, you people. And he actually showed up in a Spider-Man book. There's actually a footnote in the new Mighty Avengers. You don't see footnotes anymore. Not very often. See, Peter Parker, Spectacular Spider-Man number blah, blah, blah. This is a Mighty Avengers. You could probably start here. Okay. But I would tell you, honestly, I think it's two issues back where they get out of the Infinity event and the various, what was the? Uh, Inhumanity. Inhumanity. They did one crossover with that. But that did tie two issues together pretty nicely, and you had some great Otto stuff. Hmm. Otto wants to take over. Right. Luke's not so thrilled with <laughs> that, and they, they have a little set too. But I'll spend your money. For, you, should, you should be buying Mighty Avengers, everybody. Let's just leave it at that. Um, so if in, in a perfect world mm-hmm. where you don't have to put the name Avengers in Here a book go. to make it sell, is this book just called Heroes for Hire? Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. Because we, we're right back to Luke having, 
He's the he wants the Avengers name because that's what they're going to do. But his office is still Heroes for Hire, right. and it's above the Gem Theater, and D.W. Griffith still runs the joint. But it's it's going to say Avengers. Right. If it makes it sell, yeah, I I'll just forget what the name is. Oh, absolutely. You know, because we're we're looking at a situation now in the world. Okay, my favorite book of the of last year, basically, except for Captain Marvel, is the Movement. I mean, if that was called Justice League, the movement, it would mm-hmm. still be selling. Yeah, Justice League, Coral City. Whoever. Right, yeah, anything. Just to keep, If that's what it takes to get a book to sell, I'll buy into the gimmick as long yeah. as you don't force me to buy 14 other books to get at it. Right. Yeah, the the thing that's turned me... Actually, the thing more than Greg Land... I haven't picked the book in a, since issue one, but the thing that's turned me more around to maybe buying it is not even the fact that the art has changed, which, don't get me wrong, helps... Yeah. But since Loki Age of Asgard has come out, Al Ewing writes that book, I absolutely adored that book. So I'm starting to believe in him as a writer, and so that turns my eye towards Mighty Avengers because it's obviously another book that he's doing. There, are, It's a great cast of characters. Now, this issue, we don't see Adam Brashear, the Blue Marvel. He and Luke had a real nice back and forth last time around. He writes all these characters with interesting voices, interesting backstories. They connect in different combinations, in different interesting ways, it's really a family book out of five very disparate characters. Right. Can't beat that. Gotcha, gotcha. So, moving on, Bob. This is this is the one I was actually most excited to talk about since it came out last week, and that's uh, Lois Lane, number one. It's a one-shot from DC Comics, uh, written by Marguerite Bennett, with art by four people um, yes. whose <laughs> names are all difficult to say. Um <laughs> Should we? <laughs> uh, well, yeah, we'll, 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 yeah. definitely, definitely. Yeah. But we'll, we'll, as we get into it, we'll kind of talk about the art and how it changes and, and the mm-hmm. difference in it and see if that's an issue for us, and we'll get to the artists then. My question for you, Bob, is that this book came in at four ninety nine, which is obviously $2 more than a, a, a most DC books. Is it worth the, the jacked-up price, and is it a worthy representation of Lois Lane? Yes to both. Okay. It is slightly longer than a regular comic. It is. So that's okay. Uh, speaking of branding things, the fact that this has to be called Superman colon Lois Lane <laughs> is somewhat annoying. But that's it's in small letters. It is. And in the book, he appears in, I think, two panels and is mentioned three or four times yeah. briefly. Mm-hmm. We get a story here that ties into a lot of Lois' backstory. We see her sister, her mom and dad, army bases. It's sister's. More than anything else, this is about sisters and love, and there's real deep emotion here. There's a real sense of tragedy impending in the two different storylines from the past and the future as things start to go really haywire. Lois is smart, fierce, brave, and amazing. Mm-hmm. I wasn't going to pick this up. I have to tell you, it wasn't the price. It was, oh, this is going to be another one of these books. Yeah, it means nothing, goes nowhere. I was completely wrong. I thumbed through it in the store and went, no, I want to read more of this. Closed it up. I went, no, I'm taking this. And my comic guy said to me, well, if you can bring it back. No, I'm I'm in. I was just involved from moment one. As as the story begins, you're seeing Lois and Lucy speaking to each other as they're, Lucy's being brave. (laughs) And things go really weird on the base they're at, and Lois has to save her. Does she? Doesn't she? She's always in there pitching, right. always trying. I'll never let you fall sort of idea. Mm. 
we cut to a, a more adult Lucy and Lois. The relationship is kind of the same, but Lucy has bigger problems. Uh, she's taken up with uh, a roommate who's got a drug issue of one kind or another, and things begin to look dark, but dark in a normal way, and it goes all science fiction-y, superhero-y, but never so much as to be intrusive. It's a comic book, after all, so we have to have a huge threat. Right. This huge threat turns into mutation and odd things. There are some spoilers I'm not going to get at because there's a couple of really, really big ones. Your thread through all this is Lois Lane is a reporter. She is not Superman's girlfriend. She is not some ancillary character. Oh, we'll put her in a book to make her do something. No, Marguerite Bennett nails Lois completely here. Mm-hmm. I, I can't say enough about how great I thought this book was. Yeah, so that's the. You, I'm glad you brought it up right at the end. I wanted to ask about that. Do you feel like this is kind of the coming out party for Marguerite Bennett as a writer? And do you feel like this shows that she has a place at the table to write something big at DC? Absolutely. No, she did one Batgirl issue. One Batgirl issue. She just did the the, the most recent Joker's Daughter mm-hmm. one shot, which I heard was good. You know, way better than the, apparently the mm-hmm. mess that was that the Villains Month one. And I think she's done one or two other kind of fill-in issues here she or there. She did Lobo. She did Lobo. That's right. Okay. That's right. Mm-hmm. Which, Stephanie, you read that, right? I did. And you enjoyed it, correct? I did. So there you go. Um, so what do you, do, what do you think about that? Do you think this is kind of, this is saying Margaret Bennett's ready to be writing some big books? Yes. Now, considering we, we have actually named, well, DC's named, we haven't. Mm. DC's named a writer for Wonder Woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, her name was brought up last week. Right. I can see that in a heartbeat. Right. Yeah. If they decide to launch some more female characters or do something with some of those ladies in the movement, mm. yeah, if Gail's not going to, let Marguerite go to town. And the question as well, and I, I do want to throw it to Stephanie at some point because I want to – Stephanie, did you read Lois Lane? I did. Okay, so I'm going to throw it to you right after I ask Bob this because this is a big question for Bob especially. It, it, it looks like we have the movement is ending – we don't know Gail's future on Batgirl. It, it seems like it would be strong, but who knows? Mm-hmm. She seemed to be doing more and more work at Marvel. If Gail decides to go to Marvel and write full-time there, would you have a problem if Marguerite Bennett was the person who stepped in for her? Based on this one mm-hmm. s- small sample, yeah. admittedly very small Absolutely, sample, yeah, yeah. I'd say yes. Mm. It would then be the same situation, though, as with Batwoman. What would you then do? Batgirl has had way too many crossovers, but they've still... The crossovers themselves have been outside of Batgirl continuity in right. its own way. You could ignore them and just read the regular book and mm. pick back the story back up. If you had someone brand new who was more beholden to what the company said mm-hmm. to do, you know, Gail is a freelancer and she's Gail Simone who right. might just finally go. Mm. If you start to change the focus of the book around, it, I, I I would say yes unequivocally, and I would buy it, and I wouldn't instantly go, no, I'm out of here. Mm-hmm. Right. Which is really be... more what I'm asking. Right. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I would hang in. I would definitely hang in because I, the way she handled everything in this book, whether it was Jimmy Olsen showing up, the the moments with Lois's mom, who is one sport, she's very sick mm-hmm. in this story. Yeah. It is just so touching and then so ties in thematically to the other part of this story the sense of people needing help Lois becomes the mom in the family and a role she continues to play as we move forward in she and Lucy's lives that's this is someone whose work I want to read more of yeah 
So the artist, I just want to say, it's Emanuela uh, Lupacino, uh, Megan Hetrick, Ig Guara, and D, uh, this name is always gives me trouble, uh, Diogenes Nieves. Diogenes. Diogenes. The seeker of truth. Nieves. Remember him? Uh, the little lamp? I do. I do. Yeah, there you go. I do want to say this is an instance when there is, like I said, one, two, three, four artists. But I feel like, even though each style is slightly different than the rest, the other, they're all they're all done very, very well. And I feel like they at least belong together. They're not exactly the same, but I did not feel jarred when the art changed, mm-hmm. which can happen a lot when you have books with this many different artists in them well we sort of move to other scenes yeah and so yeah. it's all okay it's now night and mm-hmm. so it's not so terrible i was i when i saw all the artists i didn't i when i you see the front of the book it's the usual sort of four or five names oh color yeah. letters yeah, someone yeah. did the cover wait how many artists yeah. this book i know but it all works yeah it all just worked so stephanie tell me what did you think of uh, lois lane number one um, I'd read some reviews of it that were kind of, I actually, I think even our review on the site was listed as a tentative buy. Mm-hmm. And um, I went into this with that in mind thinking, oh boy, poor Marguerite can't catch a break on <laughs> getting, she always gets these one shots. She's a good writer, mm-hmm. but you know, she always seems to get these one shots that don't really allow her to develop much of a story. So I was really kind of wary going into it. You know, I like these books. I like, you know, Marguerite and I like Megan Hetrick's art a lot. And um, I got to say, I loved it. Mm. Um, There were a couple moments when things started to feel a bit rushed at times. And but overall, I thought that the story was really great. And it wasn't a story that wasn't was focused solely on Lois Lane, like it was her family. It was, you know, her trying to help her sister. And I just thought it was awesome. I mm. thought it was awesome. It wasn't her trying to get a story, uh, even though that was kind of, you know, something she thought she could do with all of this throughout the, um, you know, plot. But I, I liked that it was just the lowest lane that, I have in my mind. Um, you know, I hate bragging further on Man of Steel, but when we had that discussion, you know, a big part of why I didn't like the movie is because she just, she wasn't smart. You know, she, we knew she was smart because she won Pulitzers, and I know that because she told us like four times, <laughs> but she didn't act smart and she didn't act brave. She didn't do, you know, anything to get a story she acted like an idiot to get a story Mm. and she was an unnecessary plot device throughout the whole movie and that is all she was i don't care if you yell at me she (laughs) was an unnecessary plot device and in this she is the story and she drives the story and she is the lowest lane that should be portrayed in the movies to come Mm. absolutely amen (laughs) so i mean like what you said, Bobby, about the art, I, I heard people saying that it was jarring, but I thought it was great. Mm-hmm. I thought the art styles, you know, they split them up so that, like, you know, the past was a different art style. And other than that, you really couldn't tell 
when things changed up. Yeah. I mean, if you, it's funny because if you, I think they were very smart because if you look at the last page of the book and the first page of the book uh, next to each other, they're they're completely different. But the they gradually, the art styles gradually changed over time. So I think by the time you got to that last section, it, it wasn't jarring. I, I loved it as well. I think that I love the you know a lot of times I pick up in these books are the themes or these recurring lines, and I love the idea of her thing is I. I'm not always going to catch you, but I'll never let you fall alone, which I think is, it's a really, it's a, it's a special phrase. It's, it's a different point of view than we're used to seeing. You know, it, it's a slightly slanted, it's a, it's a skew from the usual kind of hero ethos, but it's still in line with that. You know, I, I love that in this book, like Stephanie was saying, she's incredibly smart and, and enterprising and self-sufficient. But I love that she also knows that she has a trump card and she's not stupid enough not to play yeah. it. You know, if something happens, I'm going to do this by myself, but if something happens to me, you tell him what happens so we can get this, we can get this sorted out. Like that, that makes sense. That's what a person yeah. would do. If you had Superman on your side, he wouldn't be stupid enough to say, I don't want the, that, that person's help ever. Um, That's what used to happen in the 60s. Right. And- in, in the old books, mm-hmm. she'd end up, captured by luther or right. something and then superman would yeah. come and cluck at her and right. you know, it was awful but here wanna, sorry, oh, 70, sorry let me just but, but here yep. what's great is that she solves the whole situation by herself and then sends superman superman in as like her cleanup crew yeah which i which i think is is really cool go ahead 70 dig out the trash superman exactly <laughs> <laughs> um but i think it's really important to note that we've been talking about the art and how the transitions weren't particularly jarring, but I don't necessarily, I mean, the art, the artists are all great in this book. So, you know, mm-hmm. awesome work to them. But I think the whole fact that it wasn't jarring to me, to you, Bobby, to Bob and to other people was due to the colorist hi-fi, mm-hmm. the hi-fi. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Percent, because, you know, it remains consistent throughout. And again, like the only time the colors change is for the flashbacks when it's kind of brighter and, Mm-hmm. you know uh all of that but i think you know we we often forget to thank colorists on the show and you know because we get caught up with the artist and writer but a lot of what makes this work is because you don't notice it's really changing because of the palette right no it's absolutely true absolutely um but yeah like also this isn't like anything to it but did anyone else think that you know lois's sister roommate wasn't really a roommate yeah absolutely oh, yeah. yeah absolutely oh, yeah. Yes. all right just yeah. check in i was like i feel like we're just using code here yeah i definitely yeah. got a little wink just, wink out of yeah. that out of that one which you know isn't bad but like that's awesome and i thought it was you know it could have been i mean i don't understand why they couldn't have just said my girlfriend was been well, something's I, happened but i do like what they've done i think it's also one of those things where it's realistic to what happens when you, you're talking to a family member who maybe yeah. you're not out to. Right. You or know? you that's haven't exactly seen in a right. while. Exactly. Yeah. Because, you know, my brother is gay, but my brother didn't tell us he was gay for a very long time. And so he he lived with the same guy for like 10 years and would just, you know, you know call him his oh, landlord. So, <laughs> yeah. so I, I I think that that's, you know, that, that that's a very realistic, realistic mm-hmm. thing there. I love their relationship. I love that they had a secret code that they talked in. I think that if you're looking for a great story about Lois Lane, this is a very good place to go. 
I understand that the price tag is a little bit high. Four ninety nine is a lot. It is longer than a normal comic, and it is a very good comic book. I think Marguerite Bennett, like you said, Stephanie, she's writing all these one shots, and I think very much right now she's paying her dues, right, as a as a very new comic book writer. But hopefully, this leads to her getting a regular gig, and it's one that you know we look forward to to seeing what what she develops into because if these early books are an indication, she's definitely got a voice and. Well, hopefully it's a very bright future ahead of maybe her. Maybe with the movement being pushed out, we see Superman being scratched off the cover of this and this becoming an ongoing. Hopefully, yeah. I'd that'd be, be great. I'd, that'd be great. If she's doing it, mm-hmm. I don't mind me just reading something here. Go, go it's, right a, it's one panel that speaks to some of uh, what we were just talking about with some of these, the characters and their relationships and so on. It's... Eleanor Lane talking to the two girls. They've had they've had their bad day. There's been a fall mm. and a crash and whatever. And some of the people around the base and the other soldiers made fun of them for not speaking the language right. You don't belong and so on. And so with both girls in her lap, Eleanor Lane says to them, you belong where you choose to belong. Love, your life, your heritage, your identity, all are yours to claim. It's not up to someone else to tell you who and what you are. Mm-hmm. Could that, you know, Lois's mantra forever. Lois's... Yeah. Lois, he's not an appendage to Superman, and that's what we see here, Absolutely. and that's what's so great about this book. Yes, I totally, totally agree with you. And sorry, Stephanie, go ahead. I just want to say thank you to Bob because you know I wasn't planning on picking this up, but you did read it and you put it on our list, and I decided to give it a shot. Kind of, you know, I, I didn't know what to expect, but because you put it on, and I made it a point to read it, and thank you. My pleasure. Um, uh, before we uh, move on to our topic, I do want to mention quickly uh, Fantastic Four. Mm-hmm. Number one, I'm sure people want to hear, especially Bob's opinion about <laughs> about this book. Uh, James Robinson and Leonard Kirk. It hasn't it hasn't what has it been a month, two months. What is how long has it been since the end of the Fraction run? Two months. Two months. Yeah. So we're we're back in the saddle here. Uh, the usual crew uh, assembled, yeah. taking on Fin Fang Foom, and with a larger issue stemming somewhere in the future the, the issue very much starts out with a foreboding voiceover by, by mm-hmm. sue storm and then moves into kind of the fantastic four adventure of of the month while giving us hints about what is to come for the family i reviewed it uh, for the site and people can check out that review at tongue and for me i liked the book didn't love it uh first of all i want to say the Art by Leonard Kirk is absolutely gorgeous, unbelievably gorgeous. These these are red costumes aside for the Fantastic yeah. Four, which I don't I just don't understand. There's it. supposed to be a reason for that. Okay. He's going to tell us. All right. Okay. Not sure what that is. I mean, yet. whatever. Yeah. It's not that big of a deal, but it's one of those things when we talked about Justice League War when I talked about it last hmm. week. It just feels weird to me. I don't know why they they do it, but they have red costumes. But some of that stuff with Fing Fang Foom is unbelievable. Just gorgeous, gorgeous stuff. I, I love the, the the depictions of all the characters. I think they all look great. I think the kids look great. I think the city looks great. All of it just looks amazing. And the book has a few moments that are wonderful. Wonderful, wonderful moments. I think the voiceover is very good. I think it's written very, very well. And there's one moment in particular with the kids when they come in. And Bentley has created a chocolate death, yeah. death by chocolate ray. Which... And it's just magical, wonderful, innocent moment. And if the book was made up of all those kind of moments, it would be wonderful. 
unfortunately for me, and this happened the same thing when I was reading his Earth 2 stuff, the dialogue to me is just not good. It's very it, clunky. It, it's very clunky. I, I feel like I feel like it's it's always two lines too long. You know, you don't need to explain to me what we're seeing in the scene. This is a visual medium, you know? You know, you don't have to say, you know, the the, the dragon is big. I mean, that's 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 <laughs> a, 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 um, that's not actually a, a line in the book, but it's an example of uh, the type of line that's in the book. And I talk about this in the in, in the review, but there's this one scene between Sue and, and Reed that would be very powerful if it wasn't weighed down by this bad, bad dialogue. There's no, and I, I, I talked about comics and coffee, I talked about this in my review, there's, n- there's absolutely no reason when you can see both characters and you know one character has seen the other character for him to go, what's wrong? You look really sad over there. Like, that's, that, that's just not, that's bad writing. Um, James Robinson is not a bad writer. You know, I've read things mm-hmm. of his, he doesn't do that in All New Invaders. No. This just feels to me like it's, it's rushed. That's what it feels like to me. Um, so that part of it, it was a big detriment to me. Other than that, I thought the tone was good. I, I, I liked the people in it, but uh, it just, it did not sell me all the way. Bob, as a huge Fantastic Four fan, what did you think? I also liked but didn't love, mm-hmm. and in, for some different reasons, some the same. I don't think he has read down particularly well. Okay. I thought he had the sort of newer version of Sue working pretty well. Johnny, a little crazy, which is mm-hmm. good. Yes. The ben and Alicia stuff I thought was my favorite. Mm-hmm. I just really, he had said he was going to bring her back. As we open with Sue telling this story of a bad future, which we knew was coming, Considering I knew ahead of time, I was pleased with how the issue was more positive in the giant middle section of it. A lot of fun, the kid stuff, a giant dragon attacking New York and a big monster and a great mm-hmm. fight scene. The, the art in that sequence was absolutely incredible. I thought a couple of the shots of Sue were a bit off Franklin's face okay. a couple of times. Not so great, but I like Leonard Kirk a lot. Mm-hmm. I think he'll find his voice with his pencils right. as, as we go along. My real problem is I think the whole it's the end of the Fantastic Four again mm. would be better served a year out than let's start. I'm going to start. My first arc will be breaking them all up. Mm-hmm. I like James Robinson and have for a very long time. This is a, a story arc that Roy Thomas has done and Len Wein has done and Steve Englehart has done and you name it has done kind of been there, done that, and maybe to a lot of new readers, they haven't. But if this is your jumping on point, is this a good jumping on point to try to get new readers or some of those who left between Hickman and Fraction? Mm -hmm. I think it's a little daunting if you haven't introduced me to your characters yet that we're going to split them all apart and Reed's going to betray them all. His daughter has already left, which is kind of an odd note for me too. Right, Val, I know she's a really smart (laughs) eight-year-old, She's gone to stay with Uncle Doom because she's mad at her father. Mm-hmm. Uh, go get her back. Right. You know, she shouldn't be somewhere else. Obviously, I'm sticking with this because there are so many more good things than bad. But for me, it's a B if I'm giving it a grade. Yeah. And the problem the problem with buying comics is it has to quickly rise above a B because I have no room on the stuff that mm-hmm. I buy for Absolutely. a B. You know, and that's just the, that's the way it is. There's too many that come out. They come out too often. I can't have a B on my pull list because then I'd be spending eighty dollars sure. <laughs> a, a week on comics 
you know, if I could, if if I was buying, you know, B B B comics, and that's the main issue, right? Is that it doesn't have anything that sets it apart to me. It, it the the Hickman stuff obviously has something that sets it apart. The Fraction Run has something that set, set it apart. This does not feel set apart for me, uh, and and so I. In, if that's not there after a second issue, I don't know if it's going to stay on my pull list. It'll be the same thing like what happened with All New X Factor. Mm-hmm. And I don't want that to happen, but it's just, it, it, I feel I, I feel like that's going to happen. Well, the funny thing is, when Matt Fraction took over, after a three and a half year storyline uh, from Jonathan Hickman, very usual, intense, deep, whatever mm-hmm. going on, world shattering, he came on with the mantra of you know, more adventure, less action, and gave you a family road trip and a second book of all sorts of goofy making waffles and having breakfast on the upturned fantastic car. And as bad as things were, they're dying in essence. Yeah. Their, their bodies are falling apart and their, you know, Reed's arm is broken and Sue's going invisible in the middle of bones are showing and Ben's armor is coming off. It was a sense of hopefulness. Mm. And I want to see what happens next. I want to see the meat Caesar or that George <laughs> Washington was a scrawl and all this mm-hmm. crazy stuff that was very much middle period Stan and Jack, some of what Byrne did, a lot of craziness going on, but still forward thrusting hopefulness. This and the new way of comics are, we know this is a six issue arc right? because they're going to want to collect the end of the Fantastic Four, at least mm. six of them. It's It could be pretty daunting six issues in. I would have... I don't think I'd have started this way. I'm also not a professional writer. I, you know, <laughs> he's, he's, I think, looking to change up what Fraction did. But yeah. He may have gone too far mm-hmm. in the other direction. There are plenty of more fun, lighter, adventure stories. You know, Mark, Mark Wade, when he did the book, came up with a great idea that they were Imaginauts. Right. Not astronauts or cosmonauts, but Imaginauts. Mm-hmm. That they were about finding out stuff. And that right. was their job. Not beating up monsters or fighting bank robbers. It was finding out stuff and exploring and that Reed did what he did gave himself a ridiculous name and put his friends into these superhero outfits and and that world to make up for the mistake he made that turned them into something less than human right and now he's betrayed Ben and sent him to prison and all the rest (laughs) of it I little dark for me I'm sure there's a reason Mm -hmm. I'll I'll get look. I've got every single one of these. Right. <laughs> I have Fantastic Four issues in Spanish, in big little books, in reprints galore, and you name it. I'm not giving up. I even bought the Jim Lee ones. Right. And they were awful. <laughs> I I want to be able to read it and have fun. Yeah. And not just oh, fan through it and go. Yeah, it's, mm-hmm. I bought it because I had to buy it. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we'll see what develops with that book. Um. We're going to take a little break now. We're going to come right back and we're going to be talking about Eric Stevenson's Comics Pro Speech. Right, we are back, and as promised, we're going to be talking about what Eric Stevenson, publisher at Image Comics, said at Comics Pro this past week. Um, so we're not going to read the entire statement 
on here. We're just going to kind of talk about the some of the. I have some quotes I picked out. We're going to talk in generalities about what we feel about his sentiment and how he went about, uh, you know, portraying that sentiment, and also the reactions that have come in since then from both the publisher of IDW and Dark Horse Comics. Um, so, Comics Pro, it was a speech to retailers. Mm-hmm. Um, and Eric Stevenson went, you know, through many things, some stuff about, you know, why the industry is doing well, why it's done poorly, what the industry is doing wrong, what, you know, what image is doing right, what retail, you know, what, what retailers are doing right, all of this stuff. Um, I'll go over a couple points here. This is kind of from a little bit into the speech, but he talks about the companies, you know, doing gimmick covers and variants and, you know, uh, all of this other things to try to sell books. Um, and Eric Stevenson, the line was, he said, you stop ordering variants and we'll stop making them. They are only produced to shore up market share. That's it, and that's all. And when used in conjunction with quantity-based incentives, they don't sell more comics. They just result in stacks of unsold books that send the wrong message to your customers about the titles, your stores, and our industry. Now, I, I kind of want to start off with, with with that statement right there, um, which I think underlines not my issue with what Eric Stevenson is saying, because I I agree with about 95% of mm-hmm. the things that he says here, I, I just do not agree with the way in which he purveys them to, uh, and the, his tone and tenor. Let's be fair. Eric Stevenson is, is the publisher of Image Comics. Image Comics is right now double shipping a Walking Dead 12-issue you know, series. Um, and the 100th issue of Walking Dead had 12 covers. Yeah. So I, I just... I, I don't want... I think it's unfair to exclude Image from these issues when we're, when we're talking about this. Um, but let's talk about you know his stance on variants and what you think about that, Bob. Well, right away to me, what struck me beyond that, seeing that pile of Walking Dead covers turn up, was turning it into it's about you retailers ordering them. Mm-hmm. It's your fault. If you didn't order them, we wouldn't make them. That's crap. We from the '90s, people got conditioned to oh, you don't have a complete collection unless mm-hmm. you've got the non-trade dress sketch blank cover, so and so and so forth. And we we're revisiting some of that. Mm-hmm. Don't make the things right. if if as you say, it's just about driving up market share. Well, you were driving up your own market share, so don't exercise the poor retailer who now has to sit there with customers who are conditioned to want it and buy it because they're supposed to, because you, we've forced them into that mm. that mindset, or that you need to have the variant goes with the events or the gimmick cover for a month sort of thing. Mm. It's a bit heavy-handed for him to say it that way. Yeah, I, and I was, Mike Richardson of, of Dark mm. Horse responded to this and he, and he, about the statement, and he said, he kind of quoted him, which what I just said, yeah. and he said, it's a real head-scratcher. A publisher is 100% responsible for what he publishes, I assume that if a publisher produces variants, it's because he is selling them to retailers. Does it make sense for a publisher to criticize retailers for buying what the publisher is willing to sell them? Um, Stephanie, you know, we'll talk about it as a whole and get into other details later, but what do you think about the variant issue in general and the way that he went about talking about it? I mean, when I read this initially, until people kind of started saying this was wrong, I was like, yeah, that's right. 
-hmm. Because it's true. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, I realize publishers do, you know, like, (sighs) they do, they are responsible for what they publish. But at the same time, like, there's a certain standard, like, I think, Bob, you said this, that we've come to accept and, and expect. And the variant thing, I feel like retailers ask for these sort of things where, you know, well, we used to do this thing where, you know, if I ordered 50, I got this. Or if I ordered, like, you know, another 50 after that, I got this extra exclusive variant. Like, you know, I I don't necessarily think this is all things that just he's throwing out there for the sake of throwing out there. He's definitely not throwing them out there to throw them out there. And I, I, what I'm saying is, I think bo- what we're both kind of saying is that I agree with the sentiment. I think variant covers are a ridiculous part of this industry, mm-hmm. but I think it's a little bit um, crass of him <clears throat> to blame the people that he's selling the books to for buying the books. You know what I mean? You know what I'm saying? Like if image doesn't believe that they're in variants, then they shouldn't produce variants. You know, you know what I mean? Like don't produce 12 walking dead variants for, for your hundredth issue. If you think that it's below you as a publisher to do it. And if it's ruining your industry, why are you doing it? You know, that, that's, I think, and again, I think this, this whole conversation is going to be colored by these two, these two aspects of the same point, which is but, ag- agree with what he's saying, but disagree in, in, in the way in which he is you, delivering this message. You have to remember, too, that while Eric Stevenson's a publisher, guess who else is a huge part of that company? Robert Kirkman. Absolutely, but so, but my, Eric Stevenson my point is. Being, I know, but let me just say something. Eric Stevenson is representing Image here, and if you if you read this entire thing, which we're not doing, all he does is say Image is doing it right, everybody else is doing it wrong. So I ju- I don't know. I just want to get, get that, that out there. Vibe. I got this whole thing where it was, I don't know, like I got the vibe that he was setting a standard for what the industry should be from his perspective. Like he is, you know leading by setting an example that is what i got from this and that is the thing that i do believe that people need to start doing because image to me is doing it right so i don't think he necessarily has to apologize for a lot of what he said there are things that he definitely could have said better but the variant thing like walking dead when they have how many titles like but but i'm just saying yes absolutely but if you're going, the, the other thing is, Eric, if you're going to come out there and you're going to speak with such fire and such absolution, he's speaking in absolutes when he says this stuff, you have to be able to walk that line yourself. You know, and one of the things that I think, it's funny because um, Bleeding Cool does a lot of stuff wrong, but, at, you know, there's a, there's a part of this thing, which, I mean, I was going to wait till we got to this, but I'm going to get to this now because I think this is kind of the worst of what he said, right? He says... Um, you know, he talks about people coming to The Walking Dead um, and reading it because it's the it's um, not because it was it was because it was originally a comic it was a hit comic became a show and then people came to read it and he said that's because the show made people aware of the comic and those people came to your your stores to get that comic Here because they want the real thing Transformers comics will never be the real thing GI Joe comics will never be the real thing Star Wars comics will never be the real thing um, that is obviously a direct shot across the bow of companies like Dark Horse and companies like IDW. Um, It's insulting to people who spend their livelihood writing those books and the artists who create those books and the people who love those books. You are now deciding to tell people what's a real comic 
and what's not a real comic. Um, and to say that licensed properties can't be real, I think is a little bit, is ridiculous and it's insulting. Also, Image Comics published a MacGyver comic book last year. So, again, if you're going to put out this blazing trail mentality, which, listen, we, we, we all you, love you, it. You should hear, yeah. if, I mean, all of us love Image. They've been a publisher of the year two years in a row. They put out what I think are probably the best books on the market, bar none to me. But this sort of attitude towards readers is, is damaging because it's an, and I think, I, I don't know if it was Mike Richardson or it was um, IDW Ted, um, Ted, Adams. Ted Adams said it's an elitist attitude that is a kind of thing that it creates like a gatekeeper mentality where you're, you're keeping people out because they don't, they don't like the real books and, and that sort of, that sort of attitude really, really bothers me. Um, and I, and it definitely was Ted Adams. He said, he said, I share Eric's passion for, to bring more readers to comic shops. However, it's probably not going to come as a surprise that I don't agree that the only way to do this is with image books. Um, he said, it's hard for me to understand why he felt that he needed to build his business by, up by knocking mine down. Um, so my, this is the, this comes to the root of my problem with what he's saying. And I guess we should probably get this out of the way before we get to all the stuff that we agree with is that he's being reductive in order to push his own, his own thinking. You don't need to put down the other books in order to make yourself look good. You already look good. You know, you're already the best at what you do. Be gracious as the best. Don't be, don't be belittling as the best. And that's what I think has gotten a lot of people upset. And it's what got me upset about what he said. Um, because it's insulting to people who read those books saying they're not real. Yeah, I'm, I mean, th- mm-hmm. uh, that's that's what I think anyway. Well, Mike Richardson was talking about how we faced now for years the loss of young readers, mm-hmm. but Transformers comics aren't real. Mm-hmm. I may not want to read Transformers. You don't, but if yeah. somebody does and it gets them into the habit of reading, we need people to read all sorts of comics. Mm-hmm. And whether that's Transformers or G.I. Joe or Star Wars or Archie or... Batman, Superman, and mm. the Avengers. Mm. We need everybody we can get our hands on. It's Richardson who points out that, that one of the real problems has been the loss of mainstream distribution, mm. which I've been talking about on this show for two years now. It's nice to see in print from an industry executive <laughs> in that when comics were ubiquitous, they were everywhere, literally. They were at the drugstore. They were at the barber shop. You, you couldn't walk down the street without seeing someone selling comic books. And comic stores are great, and the, the direct market is great at that. But that created a gatekeeper elitist mm-hmm. thing, too, in that we have people who can't go to comic stores, young people, because they don't drive, and the Martin's not going to drive them 20 miles to go get one. Or we have people who are intimidated about going into stores because they're, they're not the most welcoming atmosphere for new readers, whether they're men and particularly for women. Mm-hmm. So we have to balance all parts of the industry, and that's if that's selling – uh, G.I. Joe's with a toy at the Toys R Us, that's a good thing, not a bad thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, so go speaking ahead, directly to what you're saying about Transformers comics will, will never be the real thing. What he's saying, though, isn't that they're not real comics. They're not – they're based off of stuff. Like, he, I know lots of things are based off of other things, but I see what he's saying here, though, in the sense that – they're not like you wouldn't go into a comic book store and buy Transformers if you weren't a fan of Transformers. There's a pretty good chance you wouldn't buy G.I. Joe comics if you weren't a fan of G.I. Joe. And the same thing goes for Star Wars and My Little Pony. 
You yeah, know, that's like, true. But but, but again, I, I get that it's readers bringing in, and I'm not arguing that. Yeah. But I also see his point here, which again is poorly made. But I see what he's trying to say in the sense that you wouldn't buy those things if there was wasn't already a foundation that they loved elsewhere. And that is no, and that is true. But the the, the problem with what he's saying is like you're saying the poorly delivered message is that he is very. Um, dismissive uh, in talking about them and you know i know one of our biggest one of our longest time and best you know listeners and readers ryan carroll is an avid fan of those transformers books and he loves them and it, it seems odd to me and I, th- I think i think it i don't remember which one it was um which of it was uh ted adams or mike richardson said this but he talked about yeah, I thought it was odd that he would belittle thousands of people and hundreds of creators. Mike Richardson. Mike Richardson, for the book, they worked on these books. And, you know, one of the things he says, and again, this is another statement by Eric, um, Eric Stevenson that I feel like makes a lot of valid points, but again, goes about it in the wrong way, which is, he says, um, um, the biggest problem with comic books is that even now, even after all the amazing progress we've made as an industry over the last 20 years, the vast majority of people have no idea whatsoever about how much the comics medium has to offer. I, I couldn't 100, 100, I yep. couldn't agree more with what he's saying 100%. there. 100%. Um, as an industry, we still cling to the short-sighted and mistaken notion that presenting ourselves to the world as Marvel and DC, as superhero movies, is the key to reaching a wider audience. It's just not. People know what Spider-Man is. People know what Superman is. They know Batman. They know the X-Men. And you know what? They've already made up their mind about that stuff, and that's why the success of those movies has yet to translate into an avalanche of readers into our industry. Um, more than that, we need to look at, at who our customer who our customer base is, not just who is coming into the stores, but who isn't, and ask what we can do to make our marketplace more appealing to them. Anyone who isn't currently buying comics should be our target audience. That is who we want coming into comic book stores, and it is new creativity that is going to pave their way to your door. New new creativity is the future of the industry, not the latest Spider-Man number one. Now, there is a lot said there that is amazingly insightful and true. He, when he that line that speaks to me more than anything else, when he says, "Anyone who isn't currently buying comics should be our target audience," I think that's an amazing thing to say, and he's absolutely right. You should be you should be gaming to get people into the stores that um, that don't already buy comics. Now, but what I will say is that I think again it's a short sighted statement, and I think that I can't say any better than what Mike Richardson says in his statement back, which is, "Yes, people may know Batman." as he rightly points out. But every, every so often, a Frank Miller comes along with a complete new take, and the entire industry is changed. Like all forms of entertainment, some comics are good and some aren't, superhero or not. And I think he's absolutely right. And I think, what, Seven, you mentioned on The Misfits, right, which is that at the beginning of Eric Stevenson's speech, he says that, right? He says there mm-hmm. are two kinds of comics, good comics and bad comics. But then he goes on to completely undermine his own mission statement by belittling comics that might be good just because they aren't the kind of comics that he wants that image is doing image doing which yeah. look that's fine like mm-hmm. i do would i rather read deadly class number 1 or saga or or pretty deadly than read transformers absolutely but that doesn't make those books more essential to the the health of the industry mm-hmm. that you know than the licensed books do. Well, well Mike Richardson says, the industry will be best served when it offers all types of comics distributed through all markets in a variety of formats to all types of people throughout the world. A lofty goal, 
But if we achieve it, our comic shops will thrive. Mm -hmm. But that's just my opinion, he says. Right. <laughs> um, but, I mean, Stephanie, I, I don't want to just, you know, talk around the, all these other quotes. I want to... Um... Well, I feel like we're focusing... Like, when I read this, I got so many good things out of this. And, like, honestly, I feel like we're really bashing this speech, which had so many amazing things to bring forward. And I, I agree with, like, 90% of it. And I feel like we've been talking for 20 minutes now, and we've been tearing it apart well i, well, I want you to give me well let's, like, let's get positive then this whole speech is like i said before he is you know again a lot of stuff could have been said better yes i get that but like lead by example you know we don't want to just keep saying it's like you know women in comics and people of color who want to be in the industry and like um uh Rob Guillory from Chew, who said, you know, be the change you want in the industry. He is being the change he wants in the industry. He's making extreme statements and it's getting people's attention. Do you think that this speech would have been noticed? Who would have noticed this speech if he didn't make these things known and if he didn't say these, you know, massive things? Well, absolutely. I mean, he's obviously very smart. At, at marketing and publicity, like I would, ne I would know, like, never, never take him away from that. No, I know, but like, do you know what I mean? Like, it's just <sighs> this thing. He says this, good things, absolutely. Right, yeah, let it me just, just go ahead, Steph. Sorry. No, no, go ahead. No, I would. He's saying things here that we've been saying mm -hmm. all along. There needs to be more kinds of comics serving more more parts of the industry, more parts of the audience that haven't been addressed yet. So it's the horror and the science fiction and it's crazy combinations thereof and so on and so forth. He didn't need to do it by knocking what everybody else likes. Mm -hmm. That doesn't serve anybody very well mm -hmm. because all you do is set up the situation where you got a lot of attention and you have everybody's focus on you. You better do everything right. Yeah. And at a certain level, as someone who does read mostly superheroes but lots of other stuff when they were doing other things mm -hmm. war books and so on and so forth back then is there too much focus on that yes are there too many superheroes are there too many avengers and batman and justice league books 100 percent. and i said this to you off the air considering what marvel and dc's market share combined is good bad or indifferent mm -hmm. he he his company exists in an industry today that is solely on the back of what stanley and jack kirby did 50 odd years ago there wouldn't be comics at all if someone didn't come up with superheroes that kept this all going until we could come back around to a more broadened right. marketplace. Mm -hmm. So, you know, to quote a famous wrestler, know your role. <laughs> Bob just quoted The Rock. You know, Amazing. just sort of just show a little, a little humility in yes. the face of what's happened before and say, we can do better than we have been, mm -hmm. us included, mm -hmm. and we're trying to lead the way doing it what we do. Yes. And not throw everybody else under a bus. Yeah. Fair, like, okay, but to be fair to that, you know, some of the things he didn't need to name, but at the same time, he did need to name them. Because guess what? Spider-Man isn't bringing in that many new readers comparatively to stuff that, like, Image and IDW and, like, you know, they're doing new things that you can hop onto. Spider-Man, even at an issue number one, is intimidating because guess what? There are years and years and years and years and years and years and years of backstory. And while they usually make it easy enough to jump onto, there's always stuff that, you know, 
you've missed. There's always stuff. If you're picking up an image number one, you are getting a fresh, brand new story. Absolutely. And that, you yeah. don't have that, you know, nonsense where you have to go through like several Wikipedia pages to figure stuff out. So I do agree that like what he's saying, like just, ah. But we know. all agree with what he's saying. We all agree with what he's saying. But I think in, in saying that there's no place for creativity in those areas and, and saying that those books aren't real, I, I think is the is the problem here, right? I think if you want to be the person who only reads image books, that's totally fine. That's awesome. If that's the place where you're going to find your your love and, and, and the books that are going to define who you are as a reader, you know, for your, your reading tenure in comics, that's awesome. And I think that it's amazing that they exist as, as a publisher. But, you know, there, there's a certain amount of here, and I'll even, I'm going to go back 50 years. I mean, 70, you, you worked in retail, right? Mm-hmm. You know, there's that the principal in retail, right, where they that they call cap turns, which is that's the stuff that gets people in the door, that keeps the lights on, that then gets them to buy the kind of more high quality uh, merchandise that sits in the store that but they, they they don't walk in for, right? So I mean, that's to me what superhero comics, you know, are at their very base. They keep the lights on for these people, you know, and I think it's a little bit biting the hand that feeds you when you say stuff like this. Um, there probably wouldn't be people in the stores to buy image books in the quantity that they do if they weren't already walking in there for some other books. Now, that doesn't mean there's not a lot of space and room to grow. I totally agree with him. Mm-hmm. I think that I do selling it just as a superhero medium is a disservice to the entire medium. You know, but I, I think the way to go about that is to just show is to trust what you have and to show what you have and uh, and trust that that is going to be your your token and your tool to to show people that you have the best stuff out there. And I think one of the things that I don't remember if it was Ted Adams or Mike Richardson said the thing about, you know, Marvel and DC, the reason you see comic book stores adorned with superheroes is because they send them those things for free. No, they send them Ted Adams, yeah. Ted Adams, they send them stand-ups, they send them posters. And he said, Image, why don't you send them beautiful, amazing posters of these books? Because your books are gorgeous. And if you want your the places to reflect that, you need to you need to help them out. Uh I, I think that some of his symptoms are just small-minded. There's no reason why a book shouldn't... And look, he's saying this because he's talking to comic retailers. So, of course, he's not going to say to comic book shops, we want our books in Target. But it just doesn't, you know, it doesn't make sense because you are you have to know who you're speaking to. That's just being smart. But the fact that you would say you don't want your books in other places doesn't make sense to me. Don't you want the most people possible reading your, your wonderful yeah. books written by these wonderful creators? Um so uh, that's the stuff that I have a problem with. Now, look. But, I, I, sorry, go ahead, Stephanie. But where are their posters? They're dishing out all this advice for retailers that they're not following up on. Well, no. He's saying that he's – what Ted M said is who, – who, whose business, by the way, was just attacked by Eric Stevenson, was saying to Eric Stevenson, if you're going to um, if you're going to belittle comic book shops for being adorned and being so superhero-centric, why not help them be less superhero-centric? That, that I didn't feel at all like he was belittling like the retailers. Like I didn't. I don't know. I. You guys got like so such a different, drastic view of this whole speech than me. Like complete opposite. And you know, like I don't know. Like it's just kind of upsetting me a bit. Like that it's just so drastically. Like I feel like we're just. I know I keep saying it, but we keep tearing this apart and. 
Well, I, I think it's so a very many good ne- things that I thought we were going to talk about, and like it just like we start on a good thing, and then it continues into all of the bad things that he said. Well, I, I, it's not even what he said. The, well, the words he said I think are great, but the the, the speech is so n- negative against everyone else except for the company in which he publishes for. Who cares? It's about image. No, but but yeah, exactly. But he's the leader of the industry, and if Stephanie, if if. You know, Axel Alonso from Marvel came out and said, you know, you know, in his dogged image for, for image for a, a whole speech, you would be flipping out right now, you know. Not, uh, but I'm just saying, like that, that, that. I'm just saying. So, image is not the little guy in the room who needs to be propped up by everybody. This guy came out and said some very negative things about not just. I don't care if he says about Marvel and DC. Who cares? Marvel and DC are. They, they, they shrug it off and move on. They're multi-billion-dollar companies. I could give a crap about about them. I don't. I don't even care about the comp, IDW or Dark or Dark Horse as a company. But if you're going to come out and say these really negative things about another company, then you've got to be prepared for people to say negative things about you. You know, if he came out and just was. Why do we have to be those people? Why can't we discuss the actual positive things? I thought like this was. I didn't realize this whole thing was going to be about. You know just tearing down this speech, I thought like this was going to be a platform for discussing how we can all, you know, make the industry better. But like, it's just so far been, well, well tell me, well, well then I, but I, we, we can move out of this, but I just want to, then I want you to tell me like, what about this speech? Give me a positive And we will start to expound on that positive. I love the idea that he's telling retailers how to help, like by doing more signings, hosting workshops, and he promotes, you know, trying to talk about getting women into your shops to, like, you know, get them to buy more comics. I love the idea of what he says when he says, ask yourself what you could do better and how you can reach that one person you're not bringing into the store, which is probably the most important thing you can tell a retailer. You know? Absolutely. Like, yeah. when you hear so many st- horror stories about shops, it should be on the retailer. You know, like... A lot, there's a lot of good stores out there. Don't get me wrong. There are some seriously fantastic shops doing everything right and hopping on board with all of the things that they possibly can. But guess what? That's maybe, maybe if we're lucky, 50% of the shops and the other 50% treat newcomers like shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is and, the real problem. Absolutely. Yeah. And you know what? Like, if the retailers feel attacked, a lot of them should feel attacked because they're not doing their job. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is what this any part of his speech is great, right? He says, "Be more inclusive. One of the best sales tools at your disposal is your ability to build a community around your store. Make your store a destination for everyone, men, women, and children of every background. Um, if there are people in your community who aren't comfortable going into a comic book store, ask them why. Ask them, ask what you could be doing that you're not." Um, Comic book stores are one of our industry's most valuable resources, and we should all be doing everything we can to make sure that that continues to be the case for years into the future. And he's and he's absolutely right. I mean that we've talked about that before on the show. And the, the state of comic book retail, if you can even call it retail, in 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 a large majority of stores, like Stephanie said, not all stores, is atrocious. You know, it, it's a it's a un, it's an unwelcoming, difficult environment to come into. It's hard to find what you're looking for a lot of the times. It's hard to know what to ask. And and to be insulted when you do ask questions is a horrible, horrible feeling. Um, and the fact that – a and this is the exact opposite of what I was saying before. The, the head of 
a major, the third largest comic book publisher out there, um, and probably the most influential comic book publisher going right now, to say that to the retailers, I think, is an awesome, awesome thing for him to stand up there and say that. Because it it, it shows... It, it shows and Image does have this philosophy, and this is why we love Image so much, is they do have this philosophy of inclusion and making books for a wide, wide range of people. And and they want those people to be able to buy their books, and they need the retailers to get on board. And it's going to take something, someone big like Image to force those, those companies and those stores into changing the way they act towards people. Because they've been allowed to act like that for too long. You know, it, it's... When we first started doing this, I got like, you know, insulted in multiple comic book stores asking questions about books. And because that person thought I was nobody and didn't need to be talked to because I didn't come in there every day and I wasn't spending hours digging through bins looking for stuff. So obviously I wasn't, my money wasn't worth the same amount of money as other people. And if you said that, if you, if you communicate that philosophy to any other retail chain, all those people will be fired. (laughs) You know, that's not, that's not acceptable behavior. In any sort of human interaction, let alone a retail interaction. So, well, comic book stores at some level weren't retail; mm-hmm. they were expanded hobbies. Mm. You know, a fellow would open a store with his collection, right, and set up an account with Diamond, and I have a, I have a store, mm-hmm. and that's all good. Except those businesses, the ones that operated that way, could never grow because they became a boys' club. The regulars and everyone hanging out at the counter and screaming and yelling at each other. And why would I walk in here exactly? Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. I mean, in seven, you're lucky. You have one of, one of the most beautiful stores like in the world, right? Right by right near you. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, I have like the Silver Snail. And I mean, but Toronto is home to a bunch of, you know, fantastic shops. I mean, but the Silver Snail, the Beguiling, mm. um, Labyrinth. I mean, comic book lounge. We have a whole whack of stores that are fantastic, and I'm so grateful for that. Because without, you know, those people, and without you know, um, that comfort zone, I might not be here doing this still. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, so. absolutely. And it, it, and if this in any way increases the amount of stores that are comfortable comfortable for people to go into. I mean, it, it's it's done its job more over than it even you know a, a, more than a, a a speech at a, a convention should could ever do, um, you know. And I do like that he he does name check some books that are not image books, which is nice. And he, he talks about Rachel Rising in his speech. He talks about Fables in his speech. Um, he talks about Kate Beaton. He talks about Hope Larson. He talks about Jeffrey Brown. He talks about Love and Rockets. Uh, you know, the the other kind of um, breadth of stuff that's out there. Um, and, and I, I think he's absolutely right there. And we've talked about this before, right? That there are readers who, and Trina's talked about this, Trina Robbins, when she's been on here, that women and minorities and people you don't think of as comic book readers are, are reading comics. They're just not reading the comics you think they're reading. And more of those need to exist in the world. Um, and I think that we've seen, I think slowly, and he talks about this in his, his speech as well, that. I just since we've been doing this, I mean, Stephanie, I don't know if you would agree with me, but I, I feel like it's gotten better in the time since we've been doing this show. I, and not because of us, obviously, but <laughs> just because we've, we've started to see the shift, at least not as much as it needs to be, but I feel like there are more books now than there were two years ago when we started this for definitely, those readers. 
I definitely feel like there's more diversity too. Yeah. And there's, and that's not just, you know, among readers, but that's among creators and publishers, artists, writers, everyone. I feel like it's starting to be a proper community and not a gated community. Yes. Oh, perfect. Absolutely. And you're, and you're absolutely right. And I think we, we, we've seen it stretch across, uh, you, you know, image is amazing because image is constantly pushing new, new things at us over and over and over again. And, and he's absolutely right. They do not rely, um, except for like three books on, uh, on long running franchises. They, they stake their claim on being, on being new and being fresh. And they've created a almost, it's odd because they've, they've, they've created their kind of Spider-Man or Batman is just their name. You know, image as a brand has become almost as synonymous with comic readers for quality as, you know, I, well, I always read a Spider-Man comic, you know, there are people who always read image number ones. And that's a very impressive, just in a business sense, a very impressive place to have gotten to for, for a company that had to come out of a very negative spin in, after mm-hmm. its first few years as existence as a company. You know, so the fact that they're now this place for this, I, I think it is utterly and utterly fantastic. I think that, but I do think it takes all kinds to make an industry turn, you know, and, and, I, and I'm grateful that we have Image, but I'm also grateful that we have uh, other companies doing licensed properties. And look, you know, I'm, I, I get excited by superhero stories, you know, uh, for me, like Hawkeye is, is as original as an indie book to me when i read that book i i don't feel like i'm reading well-worn territory that i've read many 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 times and that's characters existed for 60 years you know so i I feel like it it takes like i said all kinds to make the industry run and i'm grateful that hopefully this this ingenuity can come to brand new books and to established franchises because that's how i think the 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 everything kind of um it really blossoms because you need that big, huge base, which are the, are the juggernaut companies to hold up the industry above, you know, drowning level. So that all this, so that all the other things can reach the sun, you know, and, and blossom above it and, and make these wonderful things. So that, I mean, that's what, that's what I think about it. Now, my favorite part of his speech is when he's talking about constant relaunches, renumbering, rebooting events, the, it, that just suck up the money mm-hmm. in essence that could be going to these smaller titles and, and even within the big two companies mm-hmm. and talking about how you then get more readers involved in that. But the one thing we need is then more readers at every level age group as well. And if what takes to get those in is they've seen a cartoon on television and then want to come into our medium, our hobby, because they want to read a Transformers book, mm-hmm. good for them. And hopefully, as we all start, you know, Stephanie, you started with Archie's. I started with, you know, Silver Age superhero books. They were very simple. But then you discover that there were EC horror comics and there were war books and romance books and westerns and all those things that, that happened then. And having companies like Image and really Dynamite and IDW and Dark Horse and Boom and Rakay and all these other ones who are trying to carve out their own little space, whatever that is, Whoever they bring to the table is good for all of us. It makes the entire industry broader and richer. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, yes, Stephanie, go ahead. I just want to say, too, they're like, uh, I mentioned this on Misfits as well, 
but uh, Bergen Street Comics in Brooklyn. Yes. They've actually, speaking on what Bob just said, where, you know, some of this money can stop being tied up um, with these titles and the variants and la, 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 la. Bergen Street Comics has decided to stop racking most of Marvel and DC's titles. I don't know if you guys saw this at the beginning of February. So like a month ago, one of the co-owners said um, it'll be, he said uh, about the decision, it'll enable us to better serve our customers. Strength of self-contained creator controlled comics will let us move away from double shipping, editorial driven, artist swapping, inconsistent, tied into events, gimmick comics, and trying to keep this uh, thing going. Wait, trying to keep this uh, going. This doesn't really make sense, but I guess he's trying to think long term. He's from Brooklyn um, for his shop, Um, but yeah, which I think is amazing to have shops that are solely devoted to independent comics. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that I read that actually. I didn't know about that seventy, and then I heard it on the Misfits, and I went and checked it out. Um, And when I did, I I I thought it was very interesting because yeah, they're not racking very many. They will still order them for the customers who want them. But to me, that speaks to a shop really knowing its customer base, right? It's obvious that he probably realized that most people who come in didn't want to buy the the books that he was overspending on. And so he decided to better serve his customers by stocking more independent stuff. He obviously has an adventurous customer base. And to me, that like we were talking about needing better shops, that's somebody who is dedicated to his business and knows what to do to make his business thrive and make his business welcoming to the people who want to be there. Um, and I think that's an amazing thing. Well, as you were talking before with you know, image becoming its own identity, mm-hmm. that the company itself becomes something in talking about a store in Manhattan and, you know, J and R the old record stores would have a jazz outlet or right. tower records entire floor for just that where labels like blue note and impulse I want everything on that label because I know what the quality of that is going to be. So a comic store just having indies is sort of, I have a jazz store, a classical store. Mm. It's this sort of refined air, higher quality product at a certain level. Right. And people know, well, I can come in here and if I get a recommendation, Mm. I know what they're stocking. I can gamble on anything being on that shelf being something I'm going to want to read or at least sample. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the we've experienced, Bob and I have experienced in real life, and I'm sure Stephanie has as well, and a lot of our listeners have, exactly what he's saying, which is people thinking that comics are just superheroes, and then being introduced to something that makes them realize it's so, so much more. It happened with our friend Jackie, she we let her read Lock and Key, mm-hmm. and she, you know, she fell in love with it. And she now she reads comics on a regular basis, because now she realizes it's more than than just something she's not interested in. And in that, I think he's absolutely right. I think that, listen, marketing, we talked about this so many times, marketing is a failure of this industry top to bottom. You, you can see it too because the the times they do actually market, the books sell. Mm-hmm. You know, the New 52, listen, it sold well because it was number ones, but it also, it sold better than they expected because it was everywhere. It was on, you know, Good Morning America. They were talking yeah. about the DC comic books. That doesn't happen very often. This industry needs to get better at communicating, you know, what it what it does. Yeah, we need to get Stephanie on the Toronto News more. Yes. Look what do. happened with Ms. Marvel, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, something like, you know, uh, something like 
the unwritten, right? Why isn't that being marketed to people who love things like Harry Potter? You know, sure. why isn't that happening? That, that that doesn't make doesn't make sense. Yeah, look, you know American I mean? Horror Story. How many series seasons into that yeah, already? Three now. Right. Why isn't there a lock and key ad? Yeah. Where some that would tie. Like, there's a there's a comic series yeah. that would appeal to that audience. A hundred percent. This industry is is very bad at that. Um, and that's one thing. The other the other mass media industries are brilliant at at, at putting it out there. And I think that. But like like you said, you have to give shops a reason, you know, to. I mean, look for, like, image. Image has Walking Dead and Saga, and Saga is obviously. I was reading this. I, I guess, the numbers for Saga right are bigger now than Walking Dead was before the show premiered. Wow, which is huge. And, you know, th- that's something on the precipice of being. It's it's huge in comic terms. It could be huge in, in world terms with just the right amount of push, and I think that. That's something that the whole industry needs to improve on and get better at, and that begins. I mean, we we talk about digital and digital is growing, and is I think it's great. I think it, it it could, it's obviously adding something. And who knows how many people who read Saga digitally that don't read it, print. We we don't we have no idea. But it begins and ends with the way people get their books, and if we can have shops that are more welcoming and better put together. I think that you'll see comics begin to grow even more than they already are. Um, so there are really great things that he said, and I, I did not mean for it to turn into a wholly negative thing for as long as it was. It was supposed to be, let's talk about the negative stuff and get right to the positive stuff. And we got kind of off on a tangent um, talking about minutia of what he was saying. Uh, and I do think the tenor in which he spoke it was, was, was ill-advised. But I do think that a lot of what he's saying is, is is something that the industry needs to take heed of. Um, can I quickly elaborate on the thing you were just saying about the comic book shops? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, comic book shops, they host events, but those events often cater to people who are regulars at the store still. They're meant to open up the doors to bring new people in, but that's almost never the case. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I, again, I love my shop in Toronto. Like my regular store is the Silver Snail, and you know I will stand by like a good chunk of what they do because they're amazing. But one of the things they just did when they moved to a new location was they opened up a cafe. Hmm. And I know not all stores have this luxury of having a big enough space or you know um, a business model that can really afford them finding someone to run a cafe for them, <laughs> but. For those who can, you know, if people, if you have a shop that has a big space and you want a place to have a community, it's like the best thing in the world. I swear to God. Yeah. Tell your shops like to look into it even, not be pretentious about it. But like, I don't think I've ever felt so, you know, in a community than when I show up on Wednesdays pick out my comics, sit down with my friends who are also there picking up comics and we just sit there reading and then we wind up talking comics for like four hours Mm -hmm. and drinking coffee and then people from around the store that I've never met before talk to us. It's one of the greatest things that I think anyone Mm -hmm. could ever do. And you see people coming in off the street because the coffee is fantastic (laughs) and people buy comics and they buy books and they sit in the shop. And 
they get involved in the community because of coffee. And I know that seems silly, but, you know, that's why, like, Barnes and & Nobles and in Canada, like, Chapters and Indigos have coffee shops, too. It gives you an additional excuse to be in that store and to buy something to sit down and read. Yeah, absolutely. It's whatever hook makes it all work. Now, we had a store open here on the island uh, up in Huntington, Escape Pod mm. Comics, where they do once a month cosplay Sundays, face painting for kids Sundays, and they do superhero stuff and coloring contests. That's trying to get someone in the store who isn't coming in anymore. The yeah. Kids don't come into stores. They have little chairs in the back mm. and little sofas and areas for kids to sort of just you know get all curled up in a, in a corner and read some quarter books in the back and mm. just wreck them. Who cares? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's take take an initiative into who's not. And one of our listeners was thinking about buying into the local store she shops in, and we were exchanging ideas. Well, have yeah, have a, a book comic book club. Sort of what mm. we do on the air, but do it yeah. in the store. Just chat, pick a book, all sit around to read. Have a literally a ladies' day mm-hmm. where you bring in female creators, celebrate those books, do a sci-fi Sunday, do all the things that are not part of what you do. Rent a theater, show an old monster movie, and mm. read Godzilla comics. And right. There are those other things. And just what Stephanie says, my store for years and years, he did events. He had artists and writers come in and sit there and sign, and it was... All of us. Mm. And it was fun, you know, and there'd be 400 people lined up. It was everybody who shopped in his store and nobody else. Right. (laughs) And that's too bad. But there are ways around that. I don't think everyone can do a coffee shop, but everyone can do something. Mm. And that's that's for darn sure. Yeah. Like you said, Bob, you know, conventions, um, Sunday is usually kids day. Yeah. Have a kids day. Make Sunday kids day at your comic shop. If you don't want to do it every week. Do it once a month. Make Sunday Kids Day. Do, you know, 30% off, 20% off, 10% off, you know, kids' comics for the day. Or every time somebody buys a kid's, or, you know, they buy a kid's comic, you get one half price. Or, Mm -hmm. you know, just there's promotions you can do to bring people and raise the next generation of comic book readers. And, again, I'll add in to the stores in Toronto because I think there's a lot of good ones here that, Again, like pave the way, and there's Little Island Comics in Toronto, which is an entire comic book store dedicated to kids' comics. Awesome. And we need more of that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that this was a speech to comic professionals and, and comic retailers specifically, and they, there's a lot that can be done. You know, I think that layout of stores is extremely important. I think that, I mean, you know. I know the importance of having pack issues in your store, but if it's at the expense of people being able to move around your store, mm-hmm. you're probably hurting yourself more than you're helping yourself. Featuring, I like I like seeing, you know, we follow some comic retailers on Twitter and stuff like that, and sometimes we get these, these they put these pictures of these beautiful displays that they've made that makes me want to go there and, and you know, and, and buy mm-hmm. those things. And I think being able to we've we've learned it right doing this right we don't get to, we don't get to meet any of the people that we well, sometimes we're lucky enough to meet some of our listeners and, and readers but most of the time it's interaction through email through Twitter through Facebook through the forums but we, what we've learned is that despite myriad differences between these people who listen to us what they want more than anything else is to have a community of people that they can talk to about the thing that they love and w- as the world grows 
and thing and companies get bigger and <clears throat> things become to seem to become more homogenized niches become more and more important and popular right there, there is something to be said for in this world where everything seems the same people seem to be flocking to things that, that are different right and you need you are as much as it feels like i think sometimes the industry is is in trouble and people aren't coming in as much if, if you're able to focus on the people who do want to be there and the people who have any interest even the people who don't know they want to read comics make it a welcoming place for people to hear about something that's awesome if you can if you can bring passion to that niche of people you're going to have people who are loyal who are going to spend so much money and they're going to bring their friends and they're going to they're going to spread the word about your place and soon soon your place becomes not a place to buy comics but it becomes a, a pillar of the community and a place where people come to even if they're not realizing it to feel safe and to feel like a, a, you know another home um and it's such a specific there are very few industries because so many of the movies have gotten so big you know tv is so big that 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 are mass somehow mass market but still are so small and you need to be people need to take advantage of that and like eric stevens as i say it, it's a community and it needs to be inclusive you need to bring everybody in who you can and you need to spread this love of what you do to everyone else and i think to me that was the most important thing that he said and the thing that uh, even though we talked about a lot of negative stuff that was the thing i took away from it was that he's he's passionately saying to grow this community if you say you love what you do and obviously you do because you spend all your your money and life savings and your livelihood is wrapped up in it then share that with everybody do not hide it from from everyone and i think that's extremely important amen um all right if you guys have any comments uh, about this make sure you email us at podcast at com or hit us up on twitter at talking comics or facebook.com slash talking comics and um let us know what you think about eric stevenson's speech and what you think about the future of the comic industry and, and where it could go um really quick i wanted to just do uh two listener questions here um we've got an email from donald claxton and he says hey everybody during the year end show stephanie mentioned that reading the wake gave her the urge to bone up on her mermaid mythology and this recently has happened to me while reading kieran gillen's three the comic has revived an interest in ancient greece and i've been rereading old textbooks about ancient greece and dipped back into, into herodotus and homer to satiate this fervor has a comic movie television show or other piece of media made you want to study or find more on a subject says i'm enjoying the content of the web on the website and the podcast thanks for promoting and starting rational conversation about comics helping to elevate the art and artists to a higher place in the culture donald from chicago thank you donald thank you very much um so bob for me the first one was thor Mm. I went nuts about Norse mythology. Mm. I bought every book I could get my hands on and discovered all the differences. Which, wait a minute, <laughs> that's not what Stan says this mm -hmm. is about. But it drove me right to those textbooks and and books in the library. Yeah, that's that's a good one. It's funny because I think that Marvel cards because I didn't even read the books at the time, but like the Thor and Loki cards. I was very into mythology as a kid. I would read these books from the library. They would they were these kind of big books simple books they were definitely for kids but they were like norse mythology greek mythology roman mythology and i would like you know in ingest those very very heavily um i mean i used to read uh the indian in the cupboard books oh sure as well as totally it's different but like the 
Little House in the Prairie books, and the long series of books by Laura Ingalls Wilder. <clears throat> and those books got me very, very interested in, you know, American history. And, and, and I learned a lot about that uh, reading over those things. Stephanie, anything for you? Well, he kind of touched on a few of the things, obviously, that um, made me delve deeper into other stuff. But like you, Bobby, like I was super absorbed in mythology and like I had like a weird thing about history too and especially like tragedies I was a weird child um (laughs) but like I was really really like I loved stuff like the Titanic and this was before Leo and Kate (laughs) um but like I would read books and historical fiction and actual like retellings and I discovered this old lady in the next town over from me was one of the oldest survivors still alive. And, you know, and I was obsessed with learning more about like the Holocaust. And I was always wanting to learn about, like I had this period of time where I was obsessed with like the czars Mm. and like the story of like Anastasia and stuff, but like not just her specifically, but like, you know, the history of, um, you know, the Royal families in Russia and, it just all of these things like Anastasia the movie helped spur that and I was just I apparently liked tragedies because uh, <laughs> I guess Greek mythology could also fall under that category sure. too. yeah absolutely no, but, the Titanic got me too though Steph, yeah but it was night to remember the 1958 movie when they showed it on television I remember drawing I can't tell you how many times the Titanic sinking hmm. and buying that book and every other one I can get my hands on and then that that somehow got into Jack the Ripper. <laughs> I've got way too many books about that, and I can show you the real pictures and everything. It's just sort of sad. So I think we're alike a lot that way, Steph. Yeah, yeah. I I, I was just like I, I grew up in a, such a small town, and literally it had a post office, a grocery store, a convenience store, and a library. Hmm. And I lived at that library because my parents would take the TV away, and um, I didn't have a computer, and so. And I'm an only child, so like I would either read, or that was it. Hmm. That was all I had to do, you know. So I just would go into the library and spend hours there, and hours and hours and hours and read. You know, from actually, it's funny enough, and actually was because of the the Leonardo DiCaprio mm-hmm. movie. But I got super into Titanic, like history and lore and mm-hmm. stuff like that. I I read and I remember the book, and then I saw the movie. Um, and then, you know, I, I read all this history stuff about it. I was, I was like looking for historical inaccuracies in the movie and, and stuff like that. It happened the same thing that happened with JFK. I got obsessed with the JFK Ugh. assassination after I saw the Oliver Stone movie, uh, you know, however old I was 10 or 11 or whatever old I was when I saw that movie, I got obsessed with it. I was, you know, I would watch every documentary and I was reading like every book about it. It happens a lot when the, with those like, kind of historically based fictional accounts. Like I read the Da Vinci Code. I read like all these books about the Templars and and the Masons and all this thing just to know what of it was because it just fascinated me. I knew most of it was probably you know false, but the the his, the base of history behind it just mm-hmm. it just felt so unreal to me. It felt so fantastical to me that there were these people who did these things and you know pulled the strings in this way and all these other things. It just it just it, you know it mm-hmm. got my lit, lit, my lit my mind up with stuff like that. So yeah. I guess it's the fictional representation of real things get us to check out the real thing. Yeah. It's not so bad. Yeah, no, not at all. Yeah, Jurassic, Jurassic Park was the same way. Really sidetrack. Oh, yeah, I was obsessed with dinosaurs, too. Yeah. <laughs> I still um, am. <laughs> I know that wasn't directly 
correlating to anything specific comic book wise, but no, he asked for anything. He asked yeah. movie, oh, okay. comic book, anything. Um, yeah. Yeah, I was just obsessed with JFK after watching Jack Ruby shoot Lee Harvey Oswald live on television. <laughs> right. <laughs> Saw that eating my my Sunday dinner. Okay, <laughs> wait a minute. Doesn't look right. Um, this is this this John D uh, in the in the forums. He said. I've recently been kicking around the idea of getting both the DC and Marvel encyclopedias, but I was wondering, are they worth the money? I only hesitate because both companies release updated versions every so often, so anything I bought would be outdated in just a few years' time. However, as someone without a Bob Ryer-level knowledge of comics, (laughs) I think this might be a good way to be in the know on certain events and characters. Is it better to just save my money and keep looking at Wikipedia, or are these tomes worth the cash and shelf space? Um. Uh, well, I have both of them. Yeah, I was just going to say. So I got them as presents. Uh, I think they're really cool. You know, I, I feel like they're more they're more coffee table books. They're more every once in a while, maybe you're sitting there and you want to look at some, you know, cool representations of the characters. And, oh, but maybe, I, you know, maybe what's going on in this event or, you know, oh, maybe I want to look at this character they, they mentioned in passing. They're kind of tough, right, with having Wikipedia available to you. Unless you're really into the the way the books are laid out, which is pretty cool, don't get me wrong. It's probably better to save your money if you're not going to get them as a gift. I, I'd say I, I I don't think they're they're needed resources for you in in this kind of environment. That's that's just me. The only thing with Wikipedia is the page will be written from the focus of whoever wrote it. Right, absolutely. And yes. that sometimes what you're looking for is someone trying to write an article. Mm. I have lots of those encyclopedias. Believe me, I bought a lot. Got the Wonder Woman one for Christmas mm-hmm. that I've had my eye on for months. And my local comics fella said, "Oh, you need this. Here you go." Mm-hmm. And I'll be looking for something more recent than the books I have, and it will. You just ignored three years of storyline to write something else, and then mm-hmm. you end up at the Marvel page, right? Which is issue by issue, but not the overview of the mm-hmm. whole thing. So it all becomes kind of maddening. Yeah, if you can. Know ahead of time that if you get the newest update, it is out of date a year from now. Right. Because the story keeps getting built on. But it'll give you a nice, solid base. Mm-hmm. And if you don't get too specific, I have books that are about the Silver Age science fiction books. Right. Or comics of the Golden Age or female superheroes or so on and so on and so forth. If you stay broad enough, mm-hmm. not all that information will change. And as universes change... You know, there'll be a new 52 history that'll be great. All mm. the old 52 history is fine. Yeah. So buying a DC history is great. Mm. And at a certain level, since Marvel's history, the Stone Age of their history hasn't changed at all. Right. It's still Professor Horton and the Torch and Namor and Cap. Yeah. And it's the Avengers and the Fantastic Four. That's great. Over the last 10 years, you're you're out of luck. Right. So <laughs> uh, you could save some of your money, but having one or two wouldn't hurt you any. Stephanie, what do you think? Um, it depends on whether you're a collector or not. That mm-hmm. if you're someone who likes physical copies of things and you like being able to flip through stuff every now and again, get them. Mm-hmm. If you don't want the clutter and you don't want the stuff around, Wikipedia. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think stuff like the Wonder Woman one, I think that's a different case because you're going to get a whole range of art. You're going to get um, a real breadth of the character. Mm-hmm. When you're dealing with Encyclopedia about the whole Marvel Universe, you're getting maybe a quarter of a page of imagery. You know, I, like I have the the Hyrule Historia, which is like a Zelda encyclopedia, and that thing is gorgeous. You know, it's beautiful. 
and I don't need it for any factual reason, but it's just great to look at. So if the book, for me, it's just the way I am. If the book is beautiful to look at, then I, then I'm into it. But if it's just, if it, if it feels, you know, when you used to get the books as a kid, you know, that were kind of like encyclopedias of this, mm-hmm. like then, I, unless you really, really, really love it, I don't know if, if you need it on, on your shelf. But that's just me. All right. Uh, so thank you guys for your, your questions. Again, at Talking Comics on Twitter, um, podcast at TalkingComicBooks.com. And guys, go to the forums, check them out, and uh, become part of uh, our, our community because it's, it's, it's pretty great. The people there are freaking awesome. Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I'm There's getting up num- to- nothing to say except uh, I am still so stunned hmm. with the rest of the internet world being what it is. That there hasn't been a crossword among anybody about no. anything. <laughs> I'm smiling broadly as I say that. Just, um, thanks to all you guys. Just right. really, really amazing. All right, so let's talk about what's on the shelves right now. <gasps> From Archie Comics, we have Afterlife with Archie, number four. Hey. Yes, I'm so excited. <laughs> we have Archie Double Digest, number 249. Mega Man, number 34. Um, and Sonic Super Size Super Digest, number six. From uh, Avatar Press, we have God is Dead, number eight. We've got Red Rover Charlie, number four. From Boom Studios, we've got Adventure Time, number 18. Adventure Time, Candy Capers, number one of six. Adventure Time, The Flip Side, number three. We've got Daymen, number three. Evil Empire, number one. Garfield, number 23. And Suicide Risk, number 11. From Dark Horse Comics, we have got Bad Blood, number three of five. We've got Catalyst Comics, number nine of nine. Um, We've got Juice Squeezers, number three of four. Lobster Johnson, Get the Lobster, number two of five. Michael Avon Omings, The Victories, number 10. Terminator Salvation, The Final Battle, number four of 12. And Veil, number one of five, which is the new Rucka book. Uh-huh. Which is really good, by the way. Stephanie in the future. Mm. <laughs> uh, from DC Comics, we have Action Comics, number 29. We have Batman Superman Annual, number one. We've got Batwing, number 29. Detective Comics, number 29. Earth 2, number 21. Ferris, number 24. Forever Evil, number 6 of 7. Forever Evil, Arkham War, number 6. Green Arrow, number 29. Green Lantern, number 29. Hinterkind, number 6. Movement, number 10. Ooh. Scooby-Doo, Team Up, number 3. Stormwatch, number 29. Swamp Thing, number 29. Trillium, number 7 of 8. Trinity of Sin, The Phantom Stranger, number 17. Vampire Diaries, number 3. From Dynamite... <coughs> sorry, from Dynamite Entertainment, we've got... Doc Savage, number three? Is that already out? Okay, so yeah, this is the... Re- a variant cover This is not sketch. verified by Diamond, yeah. yeah. All right, so Lady Rawhide, number four. We've got Mark Wade's The Green Hornet, number 10. Miss Fury, number nine. Noir, number five. Uh, Shadow Now, number five. Turok, Dinosaur Hunter, number two. Twilight Zone, number three. Warlord of Mars, number 34. From IDW, we've got Gateway, number three of four. We've got... Rogue Trooper, number one. Sinister Dexter, number four. Uh, and Wild Blue Yonder, number four. But Image Comics, we got Apocalypse AI, number two. We've got Burn the Orphanage, noth- uh, Born to Lose, number three. Clone, number 15. Darkness, Vicious Traditions, number one. Dead Body Road, sorry, that's second printing. There's a second printing, number two coming out, though. So Drumheller, number five. We've got Jupiter's Legacy, number four, which I'll believe it when I see it. Um, Invincible Universe, number 11. Uh, oh, the got, Jupiter's Legacy, the review copy was up on 
Oh, image. so then so. I believe Maybe. it. Maybe. I believe it. Another thing, too, we didn't get this in the news because we had a lot of stuff to talk about, but Mark Millar this week put out a statement saying he was wrong about digital comics. <laughs> he, was, he was wrong. He was like, wow. I, I, he's like, I thought they were going to be bad for the industry. I thought all this stuff. He's like, but if we're looking at numbers and everything, I was absolutely wrong. So starting from now on, books are di- my books are day and day digital because before mm. they were three months wait. Um, clone number 15. Uh, let's see what else we got. Ooh, Revival number 18. Saviors number three. Secret number six. Starlight number one. Speaking of Mark Millar. Uh, Tales of Honor number one. Velvet number four. From Marvel Comics, we've got Avengers AI number 10. Captain America number 18. Iron Man number 22. We've got Loki Agent of Asgard number two. Magneto number one. Moon Knight number one. New Warriors number two. Night of the Living Deadpool, number 404. Nova, number 14. We've got Punisher, number 3. She-Hulk, number 2. Uncanny X-Men, number 18. Wolverine the X-Men, number 1. And that is it for uh, Marvel. From Oni, we have Ator, number 1. From Valiant, we have Archer and Armstrong, number 18. Quantum and Woody, the Goat, number 0. And from Zenoscope, we have Grim Fairy Tales presents Code Red, number 4. Uh, Grim Ter- Fairy Tales number 95 Tales from Oz number 3 and Hit List number 5 and that is what's on shelves right now um, if you guys want to get in touch with us personally I am at Bobby Shortle on Twitter Stephanie I'm at Hello Cookie Bob and Bob Ryer at TalkingComicBooks.com um, we'll be back again next week with a, a full crew but until then for Bob Good night, and Stephanie Bye. I have been Bobby. Until next time on Talking Comics, to be continued.